So I definitely dodged a bullet because that guy's a fucking asshole. So you can keep that in there. He's a psychopath and an asshole. Please keep that in there. Anyway. I don't I, I love this scene. I think it's fantastic and it feels like a jackass tingle edition. He's a spinster, spinster Derek. I feel like he's just got a really bad case of wolf scratch fever. That's why we don't grab people without their consent, Jackson. Exsanguination is a turn-off for her, so it's, it's cool. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Will Wallace, and I'm joined by... Kate Colvin. And Clissa Mullis. Every week we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week we're talking about season one, episode six, Heart Monitor. If you're watching Team Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Team Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Our alpha patron Hallow this week goes to Eric Servant. He also wrote in with a question for us. He writes, do you think a novelization of the Teen Wolf series would work with a novel for each season? I mean, I'm sure it could work, but I feel like that'd be a very long novel for each season. True. I feel like we'd lose a lot of the detail that um, we get on the show. And personally for me, I like whenever we get novelizations to get stuff that can't actually be done on screen. So I really prefer instead of having like a novelization just of what's already like of a movie or a TV show. I, I like uh, what happened with On Fire, where we got all sorts of backstory for Derek, like expanding on Kate and Derek's relationship and the backstory there. Yes. I thought that was really compelling. But with the Teen Wolf novelization of each season, personally, I unless... Okay, I guess if Jeff was writing it, I would certainly read it, mm -hmm. but I just feel like you're not going to get anything more. You're going to just get a lot less, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I would definitely, like, if they wanted to pick, like, one episode and maybe do, like, a novelization of, like, the events of that episode, which I know can be tough because it's a very, like, serialized show, but maybe... You know, one of the ones like Motel California, where we talked about how that one could almost be seen as like a standalone. Yeah. And like, you know, we get a lot more detail on that. I would be really into like a novelization for Motel California as an episode. Nice. What do you think, Kate? I think that I, I agree to some extent, Calissa, that just trying to do a one-to-one -one correlation of translating a, a season of the show into a novelization might not yield that great of results. But I think it could be really interesting to pick a side character who maybe doesn't get as much screen time that season. And Greenberg? No, 
no. it's just like 300 pages of blank. <laughs> it's written in invisible ink. Oh, nice. Yes. But what I was thinking of specifically was Lydia in season two. I mean, she isn't so much a side character. She is more of a lead, but she's also in some ways ancillary to the main plot for the first half of the season in that things happen to her Uh and she doesn't really have the opportunity to fight back, Uh you know, because it's so much of it she's experiencing in her head yeah so she doesn't have as much agency in season two as the other characters do or even as she does later on in the show so I think it would be really interesting to do a novelization of season two that's entirely from Lydia's perspective and one of the things that you can do in a novel that you can't do in tv is more interior Uh stuff yeah you know in the show everything has to be external. It has to be physical and visual, but a novel doesn't so much. It can be more introspective. And I think it would have been really interesting to see how Lydia thinks and how she was interpreting those events. And then, you know, the novel would culminate in her coming to understand what has really been going on all this time. And we would get more insight into how she feels knowing that the other characters spent so much time withholding information from her. That's cool. I like that. I think that would be a lot of fun. For me, I'd like to see novels exploring different time periods in the Teen Wolf universe. I'm a sucker for historical fiction, so adding monsters to that would just be a slam dunk for me. I'm a huge fan of uh, an episode later in season five called The Maid of Jevenants. Fantastic episode, and it takes place in the uh, 18th century. And I would be down for more stuff like that. So seeing different aspects of the Teen Wolf universe in different time periods. This week, we are talking about Heartmonitor which was written by Daniel Sinclair and directed by Toby Wilkins. Frustrated with Derek's uneven attempts to teach Scott to defend himself and control the shift, Styles resolves to teach Scott himself, even though he's still angry that Scott failed to protect Sheriff Stolinski from injury in the school parking lot after the parent-teacher conferences. Styles uses a heart monitor to track Scott's pulse and figure out what brings on the shift and what helps him feel in control. Meanwhile, Lydia continues to struggle with the trauma of seeing a monster she can't explain. Jackson suffers strange symptoms, seemingly caused by the scratches on his neck. Derek goes to surprising sources to try to learn more about the Alpha, and Allison discovers that her family has a personal connection to a wolf-like beast that killed hundreds of people in 18th century France. Our favorite quote for this episode is a Hall of Fame Teen Wolf quote. It's from Stiles Stalinsky, who says... Don't be such a sour wolf. I love that line. (laughs) We also have an honorable mention, which is also from Stiles Stalinsky. He says, be a man, be a werewolf, not a teen wolf. There's the title, kids. There it is. So the episode begins with Derek trying to teach Scott how to protect himself from threats by harnessing his anger and avoiding Allison. But he admits he's not even sure he can teach Scott given that Derek is a born wolf and Scott is bitten. He breaks Scott's phone to drive home the lesson. What do you guys think of his approach? I think this is a very fun teaser. Teen Wolf is, you're going to hear this from me a lot. I love teasers and I love, I love the beginnings of things. I love the ends of things. The middle is also very good, (laughs) but I love, I love a great scene or a great moment or a line of dialogue that just grabs your attention. And I love the same thing that takes you out of a scene or out of an act or out of an episode. And this is just a great fun scene because it's Scott shopping. It's a lot of fun. You know, he's 
looking for his car, but he can't find it. So he's, you know, using this clicker, but then he drops a bottle of milk and it rolls under a car. It's like, oh no, no, this is annoying. We've all been there. But then it comes rolling back with these little gashes on it from claws and it's leaving this trail of milk and there's this shadow and you're like, oh shit, the alpha <laughs> is after him. It turns into this great breakneck chase running through all the levels of the parking structure. And then he's caught by Derek. He just lifts him up and slams him down on the hood. And it's just a lot of fun. I will say, though, I don't think Derek's a great teacher. All of that being said. Gold star for trying, though. Gold he star for He does trying. try. And he, I, I really, truly believe he does. Like, I feel like before this scene starts, Derek is, like, following Scott and thinking about how he's going to teach him and what's going to drive home the lesson best. And then he's, like, hiding. And then he's, like, getting under a car. <laughs> and, then, and then Scott drops some milk and he rolls it back. And then he's like, okay, now I'm going to do the thing. And I just, it, it's not a good way of teaching at all. It does not work. But I, I kind of enjoy imagining what led up to this scene on Derek's side. That is pretty good. <laughs> I feel like this scene does show the Hale family penchant for uh, <laughs> over-dramatizing everything. Where like yes. the milk bottle rolling back, you know, bleeding milk is just like, was that really necessary? It was not. Was it awesome? Yes, it was. I feel like this scene, though, is a total betrayal because this scene shows that the iconic my mom does all the grocery shopping is a total lie. He's clearly doing the shopping here, though I guess maybe he just started shopping so that he would know what kind of juice they're getting. Who knows? I like to think he just started. Like he went home the day <laughs> or when he, when he went home the night after Jackson was like, where are you getting your juice? He was like, mom, where do we get our juice? And she's like, you're 17 or 16. <laughs> I failed you. <laughs> it's just like. Here are the keys. Here's the list. Here's some cash. Good luck. Do you think that she doesn't let him do that tour anymore when he comes home without the milk? <laughs> mm. Why did you that come home like with the milk? That was like at the top uh... of the list, Scott. <laughs> milk <Derek's> like, bread. <laughs> Melissa, <laughs> oh, yeah. Melissa, you have to put it lower on the list because he's not reading until he gets halfway. Right, exactly. <laughs> just, just put, you know, um, what, Ipsum? Is that the word? Lorem, Lorem Just put Lorem Ipsum for like the first four <laughs> lines and then actually start with what it is. He'll never know the difference. And <sighs> there you go. Actually, one of the things I really like about this scene is that Derek is trying to teach Scott to control the shift with anger because that's what he uses. And in a previous scene, he was trying to teach Scott how to control the shift using pain mm -hmm. because those are the two things that he knows how to use. Pain is how you bring it back and stay human. Anger is how you feel powerful yeah. and wield your lichen abilities. The more we learn about werewolves over the course of the show and how they work, the more I get an impression that that's not at all how it has to work, but that's how he does it. So that's the best way he understands how to teach. His life is very sad, Kate. It was, but only recently did it get sad. How did he learn that? Well, six oh, you years, mean when he was little? Yeah, like, I mean, six years ago, when he was an indeterminate age, uh, 16. you know, like 16, what happened for the first 16 years? I mean, how did, what do you think was used to teach him to control the shift or to bring it back or whatever? I'm sure it wasn't Happy anger memories. pain. It was something Fam good. I think family. Nice. But he also might be thinking that like, well, actually I, I did wonder if what he used was his connection to his alpha because mm -hmm. he would know that Scott doesn't have that. Yep. Right. That wouldn't That's be fair. an option. So if it yeah. was like when he was younger, it was like, well, I have an alpha. 
right? I have a pack. They guide me, they teach me, they help me feel in control. They help me connect to my wolf side and to my human side, particularly being that he was in a pack that had both lichen and human members. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. would make perfect sense. But he knows that Scott doesn't have a pack or an alpha. So he would need to default to the tools that he's been using in the six years since he's had those things. That's my theory. That makes sense. I feel like, you know, Derek is warning Scott to stay away from Allison, but he just, he knows Scott's not going to listen to him. I feel like he should have just like left a note in Chris Argent's mailbox saying your daughter's hooking up with someone just a, like anonymous note. <laughs> Iago style, Iago style, right? Yes. yes. Like except, exactly. yeah, except it's about like werewolf racism. It's like metaphorical <laughs> racism. It's like, yep, your daughter's banging a werewolf. And also for a very simple and clear motive instead of the sort of motive that would be nebulous and inspire English papers for centuries <laughs> to come. Hundreds of years. <laughs> but that's like, yeah, he should have just pulled an Iago. Just to show how much Scott doesn't listen to Derek, directly after promising him that he'll stay away from Allison, it immediately cuts to him getting busy with Allison. <laughs> getting Finds busy. himself hiding in Allison's closet when their hookup session is interrupted. By Kate. That's uh, awkward. It is very awkward. <laughs> oh, and, and I like your comment here that the raw action from Allison was very smooth. It was. You it, it was, was I, I wasn't very well done. Crib your comment. Very there. well done. We'll do it for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was very impressive. She's got game. So Allison pretends to be working on her history assignment, which is to write a report that has relevance to her own family history. Kate tells Allison to look up La Bête du Gévaudan, a French legend about a man-eating wolf-like animal that terrorized a provincial community before finally being stopped. Can you tell that Kate was a double major in French and English? (laughs) So this is actually, this is actually a real story. This was, yeah, this was something that happened in like, well, not, it's it's not even just a legend. It was- It's a real incident. Right, and a real incident. That, that's a good way to put it. The speculation as to what the animal actually was and whether it was really just a wolf or some sort of hybrid, that's the part that's subject to legend and speculation. But there was a real historical event that this is referencing that happened in the 1760s in South Central France in the Lozère and Haute-Loire type region. And supposedly there had been in the vicinity of 600 attacks including 500 deaths, 49 injuries, and nearly 100 victims that were partially eaten. I can only assume Will knows about this because there's a theory that it might have been Bigfoot. Is there? <laughs> I didn't know that. No, I'm just joking. Oh. I'm joking with you, Will. He was you so excited. I know. I was totally thinking like somehow a Bigfoot <laughs> came down from the Alps and into <laughs> France and started like messing people up. Oh, and I love how he adds the bit about the Alps because he has to have, he immediately comes up with a headcanon for how this would make sense between those two very separate mythologies. Scott encounters the Alpha who draws a spiral symbol on a car window, resembling the Wolfsbane spiral that Derek buried Laura under and the rooftop spiral from the video store. Derek asks Scott if he got anything off the alpha and scott says that he could feel the alpha's anger but it wasn't directed at scott himself derek has a strong response to scott describing the spiral but when scott asks what the symbol means derek says you don't want to know in true derek hill fashion <laughs> derek, derek actually i feel like you just if it was styles he would just been like shut up 
<laughs> That's true. But I, I feel like this is a clear example. It's like, hey, I'm going to teach you everything I know. Oh, you want to know what that means? You don't want to know. It's like, he, he, he's like, he's like meatloaf. Okay. <laughs> he will teach. <laughs> For you to be a werewolf, Scott, but I won't do that. But he won't teach him that. Also, when he says you don't want to know to Scott, I feel like he's right. Scott would have stopped listening if he did start. Screaming. Because, no, I mean, I feel like half the time when he tries to tell Scott something, Scott's like, uh, <laughs> I didn't ask. No, this is <laughs> like, what would happen. Scott would be like, what does it mean? You don't want to know, Scott. What? So, that's, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's well, exactly like, what it would be. Okay, think about think about the end of Magic Bullet after after Derek finally you know gets the bullet and gets the Wolfsbane out of his system, and Scott doesn't say, "Hey, tell me why that worked," or "How many types of Wolfsbane are there?" and "Do I need to be more worried about some of them?" No, he says, okay, lose my number. <laughs> He's like, okay, we did the thing. Now leave me alone right. is actually how he phrases it. And then I think after the events of the tell... You know, he's a little more like, oof, maybe I do need to know some stuff. Yeah. But really only the things that can help him control the shift and resist the alpha. Yeah. And everything else, he's just like, oh, Derek, oh, I know, blah, blah, blah. You said the thing, like pets or whatever. But I'm focused on chemistry that I'm failing. And really not that hard, though. Yeah. So I don't know. It just... <laughs> The only chemistry he's into is between him and Allison. That's right. I really like this scene between with Scott and the Alpha. And I just love the bit where Scott's in the car and and I'm like the heat of his body heats up the car so much that the window's fogged. And and but you just see the shadow of the alpha out through the fog and then it like making the spiral. And I love just the simplicity of not actually seeing the monster, but it's there. It's just a, sh a nebulous shape, but you, we already have enough context to be like, danger, danger, danger. But then I also love that it, yes, high voltage. But then I also <laughs> love that it draws a spiral because I feel like it just shows intelligence. Like this isn't right. some, this isn't just a shark swimming around that just eats, you know, or something like that. Like this is- Those are like great too. Those are great too, but it, it just denotes intelligence because animals don't make art or have symbols. Up until this point, we've kind of dealt with like this impossibly strong monster and now it's impossibly strong, but also smart. And it's just shit. Yeah, it, it's, if anything, scarier. It's so one thing scarier. to know that there's, you know, a mindless beast rampaging. It's another thing to know that the beast is not mindless and that when it kills, it's not because it's, lost control it's because it's entirely in control which is also i mean it's the same thing that makes well one of the many things that make kate scary which is that you can understand and sympathize with people like scott who lose control when feeling the influence of the alpha or the full moon mm -hmm. you know these external forces that he doesn't know how to handle but when she hurts someone it is entirely planned and calculated and this is, like you said, an indication that the same can be said of the alpha. Mm -hmm. This is not random violence. It's yeah. targeted. This scene ends with another great bed transition, like in the pilot where Scott falls into bed and everything's nice and he rolls over into wet leaves and he's now outside. 
you know, in in this scene, we actually go from his bed into school, and it's fantastic because he just steps forward out of the bed, and he's now in school, and it's it's just a wonderful transition. And transitions are always fun, and the show definitely has, I think, a couple of fun transitions here in this first season. Yeah, they definitely know how to keep it interesting visually. Yes. Yeah. Yes. At school, Scott finds that Styles is still angry at him for not protecting his dad, the sheriff. From getting hurt in the school parking lot. And Th- this doesn't make sense to me. I don't Teen get Wolf, it. Yeah. Teen Wolf sometimes has an issue with characters blaming each other for things that make no sense at all. I, I spent this whole episode being like, I, because it, it's such a focal point of the episode. I mean, it it's called Heart Monitor. The the things that Styles is kind of trying to help Scott, but he's largely trying to punish Scott. And the whole time I was watching it, because it's such a focal point of the episode. I was really distracted by I was really distracted by how much I didn't understand Styles' perspective. Like I understand, you know, he only has the one parent left and I completely understand even if he was being irrational about it, but I feel like there'd have to be some degree of like, you know, Scott pushes Allison out of the way so a car doesn't hit her. But it wasn't like he chose Allison over the sheriff to save. They're, they're not really even the same area looks like right right I feel like it it should there should have been something that God chose not to do to help Sheriff for Styles to be angry exactly Yeah. yeah it needed to be like Styles yelling help him and Scott hesitating for whatever reason because he wanted to run over and help Allison or because he was scared that his secret could get out or whatever it is it needed to be a decision yeah it's not a decision Styles isn't even present so I don't even know like is it just secondhand information he's getting knowing his dad got tapped by a car and he figured Scott should have been there I I mean I just don't understand at all and it was it happened so suddenly and it, it was it was just because people were freaking out and being panicky and driving like it's LA when a few raindrops fall. <laughs> like there's there's not anything at all in that scene to indicate that Scott could have done anything to help. Right. I know that in the previous episode, you know, Styles kept trying to contact Scott and tell him that he needed to get back into the main part of the city from the preserve and try to work through what's going on with Jackson and Lydia. But this wasn't even about that. It's about something that Scott was present for, just not in time because it happened so quickly. And honestly, it was a a tap. I agree with you completely. It should have been, he made a decision, some kind of decision, either a decision to save Alyssa in place of Stalinsky or a decision not to save Stalinsky because he would have had to like leap over a car or something. And that might have, and that would have given away. Or if Scott not answering his phone somehow led to the events because he did just ignore him all day just to have fun with Allison. So if something resulted from it there, I again completely believe that. I don't believe it even has to be fully rational. Like, you know, I feel like logically you knows Scott couldn't shift in front of all those people, but right. if it's something right. that he thought would have saved his dad, I'd understand that. But nothing about that situation made any sense whatsoever. And it is something, yeah, that continues not a lot, but there are a few instances here and there on Teen Wolf where right. characters blame each other for things that I just don't understand and I find it a little frustrating yeah but a lot of shows suffer from problems like that and strong communication issues between characters (laughs) yeah I mean I understand like the need to have tension between characters and you want that 
you know, like even people who are working together, you know, people need to at least have like, you know, if there's a problem that they each want to approach it in a different way, you know? So like, I mean, I'm not saying like people have to be at each other's throats or anything like that, but it's like, Hey, we have to go stop this thing. We should do it this way. No, we should do it this way. You know, that's enough. That's all you need. And there was just really none of that in this episode. You know, it was just Styles mad at Scott for something Scott had nothing to do with, but they get over it. You know, Styles decides that he's going to help Scott find a way to control the shift and he steals the heart monitor from coach, which I don't know. I just uh, temporarily I, misappropriated. I'm sorry, temporarily misappropriated the heart monitor from coach, but it leads to a wonderful scene, which is Jackass Teen Wolf Edition. Allison reads a book about the Beast of Gévaudan and learns that the person who finally killed the beast was named Argent. She shows an illustration to Lydia, which reminds her of the terrifying creature she saw at the video store. But she plays it off, telling Allison that it just looks like a big wolf. You do a great Lydia impersonation, Kate. Very breathy. Thank you. Thank you. Very Holland Road and breathy. <laughs> <laughs> I love her face in this scene and in every scene. It's a good face. I feel like I could just write a novel about her facial expressions. If they can sell that at the same bookstore where I will sell my Derek Hale, an expression of eyebrows. <laughs> oh yeah, a guide to Derek Hale's eyebrows. This is a great moment with Lydia just because she's trying so hard to push down that PTSD and to just put this veneer over herself that will protect her from everything she witnessed. But just that moment where Allison shows her the book and it's just this wonderful illustration of the Beast of Gévaudan kind of coming through the fog with these glowing red eyes and do that slow push in on, on Lydia's face as she's singing. It's, it's very evocative. It's very good. It's, yeah, it's and great. it just really cuts to the quick of how much she's actually struggling, but then is able to snap out of it and just shrug it off like it's nothing, but it's clearly something. I feel like the reason it's so hard for Lydia is because she can't explain it, because she can't understand it. Mm -hmm. And as much as she puts forth a lot of effort to conceal her intelligence, she's used to understanding almost everything. Mm -hmm. She doesn't show people that she does. She'll say, oh, I read about it somewhere. Or is that what it means? You know, but because for some reason her voice gets high pitched when she's like faking a lack of intelligence. It's the Valley Girl kind of thing coming out. It is. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> is it? Just gets higher <laughs> the more she's like faking it. Eventually she'll just try so hard to sound dumb that only the werewolves will hear her speak. Um, <laughs> but uh, I feel like that's what it stems from, that someone like Lydia, as much as she hides it, is used to understanding almost everything. From rocket science to archaic Latin, she is used to understanding things. Right. And this is just one thing that she doesn't have the context to understand. And that's really destabilizing for her. Yeah, I like what you just said of Lydia always understands something. Like there's not much she doesn't understand. And I kind of wish now that this scene had been in the library set that would not exist for four more seasons. But because <laughs> I like the idea that they're in the library and she's kind of going down the aisles, pulling out books and, and like looking for something. She's looking for what she saw. She's like, it, she's like, it can't be impossible. You know, this has to have been, this is real. I saw it with my own eyes. This wasn't a thing. There's a broken window and a dead person. You know, so something horrible did this. It must be a bear, mountain lion, wolf, something. And she's trying, she's looking at all these pictures of animals and trying to find something that matches up, but she can't find it until 
Allison shows her that image and then, and it's of something impossible. Yeah, I feel like that could have been a fun way to do that scene because you're right. She's always in control of the knowledge uh, of something that's happening or, or something people are talking about, whether or not she, you know, chooses to let other people know that she's in on whatever they're talking about is one thing, but that would have been, I think, interesting to see that she is trying to find the explanation and can't until she's presented with an impossible explanation. That right. would have, that could have been fun. That yeah, the, been fun. The, the beast is like pornography. It's hard to pin down, but you know it when you see it. Exactly. I really love the episodes following the tell and we get the progression of how Lydia and Jackson each deal with the trauma of what they saw. And this isn't a criticism because I completely believe why they, I completely understand why they don't communicate to each other about this because yeah, how would you say I saw, well, Jackson didn't see it, but he knows what was in there. And Lydia saw, I mean, how do you communicate when you don't know the other person saw it? what you experienced but you know Jackson's terrified but then he also you know starts to understand what's going on in Beacon Hills and he wants that he wants that power that he saw there and Lydia is just terrified yeah Styles decides that he would be a better Yoda to Scott than Derek and resolves to help Scott learn to control himself even though he's still angry at Scott I feel like he's only even really convinced here because he thinks of himself as Yoda and he's really into that <laughs> Yeah. His approach involves monitoring Scott's heart rate with Coach Finstock's heart monitor, which he has temporarily misappropriated. His first lesson is to pelt Scott with lacrosse balls and have Scott try to control his heart rate as he becomes increasingly angry. And Jackson watches creepily from the background, already learning from Derek Hale. Mm-hmm. I love this scene. It's, I feel like it's like the closest to like slapstick humor the show gets in this season, I think. Because we have Styles does slapstick humor. All the all time. <laughs> I know. I, I love this scene. I think it's fantastic, and it feels like uh, Jackass Teen Wolf edition. And <laughs> it's really funny just seeing Styles kind of beat the crap out of Scott with lacrosse balls. Because I don't think a lot of people know this when you watch lacrosse, but those balls are hard. Like they're not like soft. Like they are very hard. That's why they wear the armor. <laughs> because if you get hit with it, it's going to leave a bruise. And uh, I was very surprised the first time I held one when I was working on Teen Wolf. Uh, I think it was Joe or someone tossed one to me and I caught it. And I'm like, is this a pool ball? Is that what we <laughs> are doing? It's not that hard, but it is. It's a rubber. It, it's, a rubber. it's a hard rubber. It's a very hard rubber, but it's just like, my God. Because it needs to be hard and have enough mass and heavy enough that it can move. But still, it's like, I don't want to get hit by one of these things. This is awful. I'm having the hardest time not making off-color comments throughout this description. Thank you for your restraint. I still have one of the Teen Wolf lacrosse balls. One of the oh, yeah? extras from a lacrosse scene gave it to me. Nice. I'm not sure Very why, nice. but I was not going to turn that down. So No, no, never. Never do something I like that. I stood out in the cold for two days to get that ball. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So this this scene is a lot of fun, but also I love how I love just the giddiness Jackson has at watching Styles and Scott kind of beat up on each other, or well, Styles beat up on Scott. I, I love that Jackson's just like, "What the hell are they doing?" But he's just laughing at it the whole time because he's just watching this person he doesn't like get beat up by somebody else, and he's clearly allowing it to happen. Like it's not a fight or anything. It's like he this is happening on purpose. So. I think it's great. It's totally within the scope of things that teenage boys do. That is true. So he's just kind of like, 
I don't know exactly why this is happening, but I like it. Yeah. I think it's the first time we see like real joy from Jackson on the show. Like sincere joy. Yeah, I think his, you're right. His sincere joy is just schadenfreude. It's just all <laughs> schadenfreude. It's so funny because yeah, it, it is something that I feel like teen boys would just do. And after like hearing Barbara's stories, it sounds like something they might just do between scenes as well. Mm-hmm. That's how they, That's maybe that's how they wrote this scene where Jeff just saw them doing this one day and he was like that's going in the show scott finds that he does actually feel stronger and more in control when he focuses on his anger he concludes that he has to stop seeing allison because she makes him weak Ugh, gross what like i why is that his conclusion it's such a weird way to express the idea that being around her sometimes makes it harder for him to control the shift it's not even something because he says something about like you know derek was right but Derek didn't say that Allison makes him weak. Yeah. I mean, he just I said think, she was a distraction. Yeah, right. Right. Which like is a very different thing because he he also said school is a distraction. You know, right. he's, he's basically like anything that is not specific to your wolflyhood is a distraction. Oh, algebra from, makes me weak. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> gotta get yeah, that up. That's that, that's the thing. So I, I just think it's weird that, that that is what he took from it. But I could see Scott the next time Derek is trying to teach him something. He's like, I broke up with Allison. Okay. He's like, I didn't say break up with her. I just said, don't be around her as often. Well, I guess no, D- Derek really would be f-ing delighted. If oh, he yeah. He would. Allison. He would be like, he'd be like, about time. This causes Scott to worry that he'll end up alone like Derek. Which Derek is like 24 or something. It's not like he's an old man who's had to live his entire life alone. Right. He's, he's the hottest. <laughs> he's like one of the, I, I wanted to say like the hottest guy in town. I was like, everyone's super hot. Everyone's Hills. so hot. Because you come to the Midwest, you could do super well out here. Just he's like 22. <laughs> 22. Like, I guess when you're 16 year though, you're like, oh my God, he's not married by 22. He's going to end up alone. <laughs> oh my God, this isn't the He's a spinster, century, okay? spinster Derek. <laughs> <laughs> he's just going to wander the moors alone. <laughs> yes. It's some like frock coat or something. And he's just like being all British and alone. I would I would watch the f- out of whatever weird ass miniseries you're describing on BBC America. Yes, yes it's, please. It's it's Teen Wolf Jane Austen edition. Or like a maybe maybe a Bronte sisters there edition. Oh totally. Yeah. Well little gothic energy in there. Yeah. That'd be good. Scott noses the smell of something rotting or dying, which might be the scratch on the back of Jackson's neck from where Derek's claws got him. That's why we don't grab people without their consent, Jackson. I feel like he's just got a really bad case of wolf scratch fever. Oh, nice. Well done. Well done. He can cover that up with just more Axe body spray. That's fine. Whatever it is that's trying to claw its way out of his neck, he will kill it by drowning it in Axe body spray. Jackson catches Allison reading alone in the hallway and sits down with her to apologize for being awful to her and Scott, apparently overriding the universal sign from women of, please don't talk to me, I'm reading this book. He explains that when you get used to being the best on the team, having everyone chant your name, then if someone comes along and becomes the best, it feels like something's been stolen from you. You feel like you'd do anything to get it back. But even though he's made a lot of mistakes, he says he's not bad. He's just drawn that way. This conversation is nothing but red flags from Jackson there to Allison. But 
she picks up on these red flags. In this scene, I just feel like the red flags from other people, namely her aunt, she just go right over her head or she just laughs it off. She's like, oh my God, that's just my awesome aunt. But like when Jackson does it, she's picking up on them all the time. And I'm like, good for you. You are learning here. I just really hope you use this new knowledge in a family way. <laughs> she's still she's still living with you at the moment, so. <laughs> well, I think women are more used to like, being on the alert for men and the red flags coming from them as opposed to like especially women like you know that they feel safe with like family members very true and this scene I I like this scene a lot because it it's creepy throughout like pretty creepy throughout but it starts super creepy but then I do like how it transitions into Jackson letting her in like speaking freely about the things that make him anxious you know like the things that worry him and especially when you when you look back on the previous episode with the parent-teacher conference and how his parents are like you know our son's adopted and he feels like he has to work very hard to to gain our love or our respect or something like that and so and this is just a great capper to that scene where he's actually articulating all of that. And I think it's very well done. And Colton just like blows this scene right out of the water. Like he's yeah. very, very good. Like he, he straddles this line of, he's being very creepy because something's going on in his mind and his body from those scratches. So he's not, I guess, exactly himself, but close enough. But right, th- he- We do know that this is actually a neurosis for him. Right. Yes. And, you know, so it's it's wonderful that he actually talks about it, that he whatever's happening to him that makes him incredibly pale. Like he looks like he has lost all the blood in his body in this scene. But Calissa lives for that shit. I know she oh, does. so into it. I know she does. Um, exsanguination is a turn on for her. So it, yep. it's cool, you know, but then he like like whatever's going on with him, he just says it like he says he says the quiet part out loud. And uh, it's wonderful. It's just a great scene. Just It, it is a great good. scene. I, I think it's possibly the strongest scene in this episode because there's so much happening under the surface. And it's such a showcase for, like you said, for Colton Haynes and for Crystal Reed Absolutely. because there's so much happening in this scene that is only in their faces, Yes, you know, yes. where Allison is picking up on these red flags. But also I think part of her does recognize that that this very personal confession that he's making feels unusually sincere. There's this moment mm-hmm. of startling genuineness mm-hmm. from him that that she does pick up on, but she also hasn't lost sight of the fact that there's an additional layer of manipulation or 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 misdirection that she doesn't have the context to understand. Right. So it, it's such an interesting interplay between them of like I don't trust you but also this one part of what you're talking about feels sincere but I I don't know if I'm going to reciprocate with anything very personal because I still don't know what's going on with you there's a lot happening in this scene in just like not not a very even long conversation it's it's great Jackson actually really kind of reminds me of Kate in the scene because what he's saying is kind of alarming not to the full extent that she is but it's alarming, but he's also very charming as he says it. Like what he's saying feels like a threat, but he gives a killer smile where it just like disarms you. That is Jackson and that is Kate a lot of the time where you you keep pulling yourself back from the edge of falling for it, 
but there's a part of you that's like, will there be a time when I don't pull myself back from the edge and I, and I actually fall for it? I really like what you were just saying kind of sparked in, in my head that when you were talking about manipulating and how like Jackson's being is manipulating in this scene. But then, so we have Jackson, who's a manipulator. We have Lydia, who's a manipulator. And we have Kate, who's a manipulator. And I think it's really interesting that from Jackson and Lydia, we understand that that manipulation is a defensive measure, that I have to manipulate in order to get the thing I believe I need to survive. That for me to survive, I have to be the only best player. And, or for Lydia, for me to survive, I have to be attached with someone who is going places so that Mm -hmm. I am going places because I'm, my fear is that if I let my intelligence show, no one will think I have worth. And, and, but then you have Kate, who's a manipulator. And I feel like, well, there's, there's, there's no trauma. I think that comes with this, that it's just, it's so, it's so interesting where you have Kate who manipulates because she can, and it's fun. Like that, Mm -hmm. this is, it's a sport, but then you have someone like, you have people, you have characters like Jackson and Lydia who manipulate out of fear that they Mm -hmm. are scared and that's where it's coming from. So I think it's really interesting that you have these sort of trifecta of manipulative characters and, and one of them is a monster and two of them are just scared kids. And uh, I think it's interesting. During Econ, Allison tells Scott that she's arranged for them to be lab partners in chemistry. Scott worries that he'll bring her grade down. Coach Finstock, who teaches econ, discovers that Scott hasn't done the reading for today's class and berates him in front of everyone. Scott's heart rate races almost to the point of shifting until Allison takes his hand and helps him calm down. I love this scene. And it came so close after another scene that I just said I think might be the best scene in the episode. And I still think that, but this scene is, you know, that scene is complicated and complex. That's what makes it so good. This scene is simple, but in a great way. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes the cutesy relationshipy stuff bores me with straights, but (laughs) they just did such a good job with this one because I feel like it really helps understand it really helps for me in the audience to understand why Scott feels the way he does about Allison, consequences be damned. Yeah. And it's a really simple, sweet moment. And it, it's filmed perfectly and acted perfectly. It it's it's a it's a delight. During the tell, we got a lot of, you know, obviously very cute moments with them, but I feel like we got more out of them as characters in this scene than we did for all of their little romp in the woods in the previous episode well and I think a big part of that is because it's coming from a storytelling place because there is conflict in the scene it's not between them but there is conflict and so you know those scenes in the tell they feel a little bit empty because Mm -hmm. they're we don't have tension and the other scenes with other characters in that episode with Lydia with Jackson and Styles, there's tension there and so it, it feels sort of strange and out of place to have multiple scenes with Scott and Allison that don't have any tension in them. But as this scene shows, having tension doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship has to be troubled or problematic. Sometimes the tension comes from an outside conflict and it shows how a loving relationship can help to mend that and guard Mm -hmm. against it. So because we have Coach Finstock being a real piece of shit, (laughs) just really being a piece of shit, you can't berate children like that that's not to their faces and in front of everyone talking about their grades and their intelligence it's awful 
But then you have this wonderful moment of how something as simple as a touch of the hand can bring Scott back from the brink of possibly destroying his life. I mean, if he were to shift in the middle of that classroom, it could destroy his life. Yeah. That's what Derek's been trying to teach him this whole time, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Allison is able to bring him back from that without even knowing that that's necessarily what she's doing. It, it's another great scene right after a fantastic scene that we just had with Allison Jackson. It's a very good scene. And I like how it leads into the next scene where, because we've already had the previous scene where Style or where Scott is like, Allison makes me weak. And then in the very next bit, it's like, nope, we were wrong. She actually mm -hmm. makes you strong. That it's her that is allowing you to find that control and to pull you back from the brink. And I think it's, it's a lot of fun that they end up needing the thing they thought was a detriment. Yeah, whenever I originally watched the episode, I was so angry whenever he first says that she makes him weak. So I mm -hmm. really loved that in the same episode we turned around because I might have just rage quit. <laughs> Allison makes him weak. No, it, it, I'm glad that that didn't like kind of overtake the rest of the episode mm -hmm. where he's just trying to stay away from her and this and that and and pushing her away. because Because I, I feel like, yes, they would have brought it back around eventually, but I feel like it could have easily gone too far right. with that, with, with this misinterpretation of what you believe, it, what the characters believe is happening. But I'm glad it's just like, nope, we had one scene to sit with <laughs> yeah. that and then we fixed it immediately. When Derek is warning Scott against being with Allison, it, it's not an arbitrary warning. I mean, that that is coming from experience. Yeah. And so I feel like this is kind of just showing the other possible outcome, right? That it, yeah. it's... Love is kind of Schrodinger's box. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it can be something really lovely and sweet and meaningful. And sometimes it burns your house down with your family trapped inside. Rough. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough. There was a, yeah, there was like a old Teen Wolf uh, gift set that used to go around I can't remember the exact phrasing. Oh, I remember the exact phrasing. I literally already know what gift set you're talking about. Okay. okay. Go Please ahead and tell us. Elaborate. Kate. Love is like a flame, but whether it's going to warm your heart or burn down your house, you can never tell. Oh. Right? Ooh. Yes. It broke me every time I That's saw good. it. That's good. It's brutal. But great. But great. As I all mean, writing it, should be. Brutal but great. the risk and reward that we hear about a couple seasons from now that... The, and, th and that's what it's like for everyone, right? Yeah. Werewolf or not, anytime you allow yourself to be vulnerable with someone, you're taking a risk. And the reality is sometimes it will burn you. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. Yeah. And you kind of have to make that decision of whether it's worth rolling the dice. I if you're so. me, the answer is no. And you trust <laughs> no bitch. But you trust first. no bitch and you will not be vulnerable around anyone. My therapist tells me that I should stop believing that. Was a therapist no? Yeah, was a therapist no? <laughs> right. So Styles realizes that Allison brings Scott back from the edge. She's like an anchor. Scott points out that it doesn't work all the time. When they're getting busy, he nearly shifts. But Styles says those two things aren't the same. One is just sex. Scott realizes that Allison gives him control because he loves her. To test their theory, Styles keys a guy's car and blames Scott for it. He instructs Scott to focus on Allison to avoid shifting. A group of guys beat up Scott, but he focuses on Allison's voice and keeps from shifting. 
the group is finally dispersed by Mr. Harris. This is a terrible lesson, Styles. <laughs> but funny. I mean, he's still a little bit pissed. He is. He still is, a little bit which pissed. I think that's part of you know because I'm sitting there like, this is clearly punishment, and I still don't understand why you're mad. First of all, it's risky as because yeah. what if he had lost control? It's testing a theory. You know, yeah. the whole point of a hypothesis is that it might not be correct. Yes. I love in this scene just how trusting and pliable Scott is in Styles. He is such a, he's such he's, a he's sweet like, little hey, angel. Do you have any keys? I do. Okay, yeah. And he just holds them in his hand for him. Yeah, just like, just hold them up like that, buddy. You're totally good. And Scott's like, yeah, uh-huh. You know, and it's just, like, and then he goes and keys the car and he's like, hey, bro, what you doing to that car? And then Scott realizes what's happening. It's just, it's really funny. And I feel like just that little bit where he is positioning Scott and Scott's just going along with it shows just how long they've been friends. That right, Scott and the just depth will, of that trust. Yeah, the depth of their friendship and the trust. And just, he'll just go along with it until it's too late. And uh, it's, it's just funny. I think it's really good. But also I'm like, wait a minute who are these neighborhood toughs hanging out at <laughs> the school? Toughs. Is that like the smoking corner or something? <laughs> See kids, way back when some schools had smoking areas and it was disgusting. But I'm just like, who, who are these guys? Now, granted, a lot of the teenagers, in quotes, look like 30-year-olds. These all just look like adult men. Yeah, and I'm just like, who are the drug dealers who work at Beacon Hills? Oh, there you go. Yeah, they got they got that corner. Yeah, that's their um, corner. That's their stoop. And that's why uh, they don't get detentions because they don't actually go there. There you go. There you go. Which which okay, bringing that up, we're gonna jump ahead a little bit to the next scene where it's just like Harris puts Scott and Styles in detention when they did nothing wrong. Like Scott's the victim of a crime, and Harris is like you're in trouble. You know, it's like, what and Styles, here? you were there. Exactly. It <laughs> Styles, you were there and most likely in the conference. You know, it's Harris, like, come on. Harris just really wanted to give them detention because he could tell they were fighting and he wanted to give them an opportunity to hash it out. Like when you have two kids and you put them in timeout. I mean, make that a hug. makes more sense than the alternative. So it does. I kind of wanted there to, I kind of wanted in that scene for Scott or Styles, or Styles, I guess, to be like, why are you putting us in detention? He's like, you keep the car literally outside my window. Like, you know, <laughs> where it's just like, so it's, you know, where it's like- And you, Scott's you, like, well, wait, what about me? And he's like, because I want to teach you a lesson about trusting people. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yes. I don't know, Derek walks out from behind a tree and he's like, yeah, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that would have been great, but- but it's great. But no, I, I like what Coles is saying here that, that Harris understood they were going through some stuff, some drama. And he was like, I need to put these guys alone together in a room so they can hash it out. And they do. And it's great. I, I will say, though, this uh, this test that Styles devises, it it still takes place with Allison within hearing distance. And he had said in an earlier scene, you know, something like, we need to figure out how you can gain control when Allison isn't there. Right. You know, because he can't be around her all the time. But then this test that he devises, well, it's clearly just to punish Scott and doesn't do anything to help that other problem of what happens when she's not there mm -hmm. for him to reach out with his senses and come back to himself. 
I'm sure they'll work on that later. <laughs> Step two. Step two. This doesn't really have to do with anything, but there's a lot of like, you know, with Styles using the heart monitor, insert shots and close up of his hands. And you can always just tell when it's an insert shot with someone else because Dylan O'Brien seems to like chew his nails down to the quick. So anytime, Ooh. yeah, like it's his actual Styles' actual hand. It's just the nails are super chewed down. So Derek goes to visit his catatonic uncle Peter at Beacon Memorial. He explains that someone killed Laura and that person is now an alpha, but one without a pack, which means he isn't as strong. He just needs to help figuring out who it is. He asks Peter to give him a sign if he can. A nurse interrupts the one-way conversation and makes Derek leave. And that's how he misses Peter's hand moving just slightly. A little twitch of the finger. Styles tells Scott that he has amazing abilities now, and that means he has a responsibility to do something when bad things happen, because with great power comes great responsibility, and Dylan O'Brien should have been Spider-Man. Should still be Spider-Man. Derek yeah. grills Dean about an image of a deer with a spiral carved into it, which had been left on his windshield whenever he came out of the hospital visiting Peter. Dean says he was asked if he'd ever seen anything like that, but Derek uses his werewolf senses to tell that Dean is lying and knocks him out. Ooh, what does Dean know? Dean continues to be a suspicious bitch. I was literally <laughs> just about to say that. He is <laughs> to continuing to be super suspicious. Like, I really hope he's not the alpha because he is real bad at it. You know, he, <laughs> the human part, he is bad at the human part. He's doing okay, I guess, with the monster part. But it's, it's literally just like, anytime someone goes up to them and like, hey, Dean, you got a minute? He just immediately flop sweats, you know? And it's just like, are you okay? And it's like, I'm not suspicious. I mean, I'm fine. So, you know, it's just like, come on. But then Derek's like, I have suspicions about you. Face punch! That's how, I'd, that's how I deal with suspicions. I punch things in the face. That sounds right. That's um, very correct. That is Derek's MO. Scott catches Derek and gets him to stop hitting Deaton. Derek says that although an alpha can keep himself from healing while conscious, he can't while he's unconscious. So this test will prove whether Deaton is the alpha. He also finally explains what the spiral means. It's the werewolf symbol for a vendetta or revenge, meaning... The Alpha won't stop killing until he's satisfied. Scott tells Derek that he has a different, better plan to identify the Alpha. Derek just has to meet him in the school parking lot. What do you think that deer did to slight the Alpha in the past that he got revenge on that deer for? <laughs> I mean, he must have done something really bad. He wasn't tasty enough. Ah, this deer vintage is terrible. But we were saying something about Scott's plan. Scott finally manages to give a real howl. Since wolves howl to signal their position to the pack, he hopes the sound will draw the alpha to the school. It's an okay plan. I wouldn't say it's a great plan, Scott. It's like, fine. Right. I mean, just signaling his location doesn't mean that it brings the alpha to him. I feel like those are two separate things. Because mm -hmm. he's like, oh, the alpha will hear me. And then he'll show up. Like, if I build it, he will come. But like, will he? Is that based on anything? Alpha just has to probably already know where he's at most of the time. I mean, he was just stalking him in that car, leaving him that spiral. Right. Just, he's, he's already gone full stalker wolf. Like, why do you <laughs> think this is going to change anything? What better things do you think he has to do besides murdering people than keeping tabs on you, Scott? Yeah, uh, he has two objectives. Your corpses. Yeah, so they come out of the school and Styles is just like 
super proud best friend. He's just so thrilled for Scott that he got his first real howl out. And that's when he calls Derek a sour wolf because Derek just says he's going to kill them both because he thinks it's a stupid ass plan. <laughs> but then the alpha shows up and just shoves his arm right on through Derek's chest. So I guess he disagrees with that. The reason that he says don't be such a sour wolf because Derek said shut up, but it turns out he was saying shut up because he could hear the alpha coming. Yeah. And don't they discover that Deaton's no longer in the car? Yeah. Correct. And then the Which alpha shows up. We should have just let Derek beat the shit out of him, to be sure. I guess so. I guess we're I guess we're going with Deaton being the alpha. If I was Deaton, the first thing I'd do if I got loose and became an alpha would be to put my fist through Derek's chest. So the alpha shows up, royally messes up Derek. He's probably dead now because there was a lot of blood Whoa. and he got thrown real hard Whoa. against that wall. And like Scott and Styles escape into the school and take us into the next episode. And they so don't care about Derek. Well, they're escaping the monster and they believe, maybe rightly so, that Derek is dead because, again, hand and back, time. lifted off ground, lots of blood. First yeah. time, not last time. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Heart Monitor. And now we're about to dive into spoilers not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. You've got to be kidding me. Be a man. Be a werewolf, not a Teen Wolf. You werewolf. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with Teen Wolf writer and editor Alyssa Clark. Let's have a listen. So I can't believe we're 10 years coming up on 10 years for this Teen Wolf thing. Just a few months. Crazy. It's 10 years. And so weird. Yeah, it, it, ah, it feels just like yesterday that we were rapping. It was late at night outside, <laughs> outside and and Tyler was all like crusted up from, uh, yes, from right. that. From, that was he. That was like his final shot. Was in so it was it was in like the the frozen concrete or whatever that was. And then uh, we had those oh crap. Those shipping containers were all outside yep. and yep. and everything. Yeah, it was. And then of course, then there was Savan and Rosie with the last with the last slate. Man, we had four hundred different food trucks that night. It seems like yeah, yeah. <laughs> so many food trucks. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was. It was good. It was good. It was a pretty good show that we got to work on. So it was a great show. What was it like editing for Teen Wolf? Well, that's a big question. No, I can't even remember what show I was on, but I was on something I thought I had to continue. And Blaine had come to me and said they just needed a music editor for the pilot. This was when it was the first pilot. So they needed someone to come in and do some music editing. And I'm very good at that, but I could not leave. I can't remember. I, I felt like I needed to stay where I was doing and I was like what the is a teen wolf like I don't like I wasn't so I actually told them I said you know Gabe is available so Gabe went and did that and then Gabe went with that editor to go work on uh movies with that editor they did a bunch of Peter Berg movies Peter together Berg movies, yeah so I definitely dodged a bullet because that guy's a fucking asshole so you can keep <laughs> that in there he's a psychopath and an asshole please keep that in there anyway so 
they did that. So then when they reshot the pilot, that's when Blaine was like, hey, uh, do you want to come back? You know, do you want to come on to Teen Wolf? And I was at the time, now I was on the very bad reality show all about Aubrey. And I just wanted out because I really liked editing reality television, but it was all turning towards the sort of like Real Housewives stuff. And I have friends that work on Real Housewives and they love it. It's just not my thing. I liked it more when it was a little more documentary reality. Like people would say, Baby the band wasn't, and I'm like, it really was. It was much more freeform, wasn't very produced. And uh, so I was like, yeah, Teen Wolf, whatever. That was a movie I didn't like that much in the 80s, but sure, let's go do that. Um, and then I got there and it was great. You know, so basically, I don't know, you probably talked to Jeff and stuff, but they had reshot the pilot uh, parts of it because they just needed to add scenes and they needed to redo some stuff. So it was about integrating that into the other thing. And we, we changed some music out and we did some stuff. So that's kind of how I got started. That's how I got onto the show. Like I, they, I came in and then and then they had a different editor who was there's three of us, me and Ed and this other guy. And then it was kind of Ed and I for the rest of the season. There's They brought in someone else, but Ed and I did the majority of work. I think in the end, Ed, I, I touched or edited seven of the episodes and Ed did five or six, but, and then it sort of evened out. And then the second season, I think Ed and I did about equal amounts. Because once again, they bring in maybe another editor, but a lot of them didn't, they couldn't handle the music as really when it, what it really came down to um, until we brought Gabe back. Gabe came back and Kim came back and they were, we'd all been in making the band and that did, did help. And Ed had been in indie movies where he had to do a lot of music editing itself. So that was kind of it. So I, yeah, I was all in. Like I was, I was busy that first season. Let's just put it that way. Like we were slammed. I think the most nerve, one of the most nerve wracking days I ever had was so Jeff and Russell and everybody was in Atlanta and we were in Santa Monica in this, in this place. And Jeff, they, they had a scene, the bus scene. I think it's from three, is that episode three where the attack mm -hmm. happens in the bus? Yeah. And they had wanted that to, they needed that ahead of time to do for like a pre thing for MTV. And the other editor had, this was before he went away. And so they brought me on to do that. I had not met Jeff or Russell in person yet. And they were on this, they had set up this editing software that didn't work very well where they could be watching the edit in Atlanta, right? Now it's a lot easier. Now they have stuff that's really, it didn't work so well back then. And they were already frustrated with the scene because it hadn't been to their specifications. And they didn't know me from Adam. They had no idea who I was, right? They hadn't seen any of my work yet. And so I'm like, you know, trying to like edit the scene. And, and they're like, okay, do it on the rhythm. And, but their, their rhythm and my, <laughs> Like it was all out of sync because there was a lag and I was like sweating bullets because I'm like trying to impress them and they're like, don't know me. And then it, about half hour into it, when I started showing them stuff, like they just like kind of started drifting away. Russell got bored, um, short attention span, like went away, did something else. And that's how I knew everything was fine because they like kind of stopped paying attention to what I was doing. And that, that was like, I got like they trusted you to do it. Yeah, but it was like, it was probably that 45 minutes to an hour was probably like aged me five or six years. Oh. Like, oh, I mean, because no. you know, like think about, and think about Russell, you, you guys who've met Russell and Jeff together and just their energy, you know, and Russell's really like, oh, and Jeff's like, calm down, you know, it was just very, um, <laughs> it was a lot. Nice. And I hadn't, I hadn't met any, either of them, as I said. And then the other thing that happened season that season is that they brought me out to Atlanta to work with them because they weren't coming back. 
And that would have been great. Though now looking back, now that we're in isolation, this seems like nothing. But at the time, it was a lot. The night I showed up to Atlanta was the biggest snowstorm like Atlanta had had in a hundred years or something. And it basically shut the city down for three days completely, but it was like five days until the city came back. And that was insane at the time. I was in a not very nice hotel, Joe Janier. Um, <laughs> instead of putting me like downtown, they wanted me close to set. Well, set shut down for the entire week. So it didn't matter, but it wasn't near anything. So like I trekked out, you couldn't drive anywhere. You couldn't go anywhere. I think the second day, Russell um, showed up, or third day, Russell showed up in his, because his PA had, his driver had an SUV, and he was so hilarious. Russell brought me like three Starbucks so I could put them in my fridge so I wouldn't <laughs> run out of Starbucks. Oh, the Thursday, Laura, the music supervisor, Laura Webb's father and family came and got me. Oh, wow. He used to be, Aww. yeah, he's actually in the show. Uh, Wayne Webb used to test snow tires. Like that was his job. So he was like a, he was like a professional driver, but so he came and got me and they took me to Richard Blaze's um, hamburger milkshake place. That was like the best. It was nice. so good. And then the next night I went to um, Kevin from Top Chef's restaurant because we were big Top Chef fans anyway. I, I do remember my meal. It was one of the best meals I've ever had. It might be because I was stuck inside, but it was a fantastic night. Excellent. Who, yeah. Who does uh, Lars' dad play? In uh, the episode where Jackson has the snake come out of his eyeball. Yeah. So when he's swallowing the snake, the teacher that comes in is uh, Laura's dad, Wayne. Oh, okay. That's yeah. awesome. It is, it's rad. I don't know. I edited it because the snake coming out of the eyeball is one of my favorite sound designs I've ever done. Nice. Um, it looks, I love that bit. It's so cool. It looks so good. It was like, it's like there's this extra sound right as the snake gets about here that I put in and it just, it sells the, it's so gross. I love it. Yeah. It is. I love it. the sound design on the show is so much fun to do. So much fun. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I think Teen Wolf definitely had plenty of opportunities for interesting and gross sound effects. Uh, yes. Over yeah. all 100 episodes. Are we going to talk about when, um, when uh, Angela and I introduced you guys to Will? Yes. 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 We should definitely talk about we that. We did mention it in our intro episode. <laughs> All right. Have you met Will? <laughs> I was telling that to my mom earlier. I was like, oh, mom, we're interviewing uh, the woman who actually introduced me and Calissa, or uh, me, Kate, and Calissa. And she was like, well, how'd that go? And I was like, oh, well, Kate and Calissa were talking to her, and she pawned me. She pawned them off onto me. <laughs> Little did she know. Pawn you off. Pawn is such an ugly word. It is. You, it is. You guys weren't the pawning type. There were other people who maybe were fans who I would like to pawn off. But though, um, uh, though I'm still friends. Like you, you know, like with uh, some, you know, the the ladies from Not Another Teen Wolf podcast. Uh, I yeah, Karen. I speak. I speak with them. Not all of them, but I speak with Brooke and uh, Natalie a lot. Natalie and her her partner Leo, they come and stay at my house when when there's not a pandemic. Aww. They were at my house when we found my neighbor's dead body. Different story. Oh my God! Still sounds <laughs> like one worth telling though. <laughs> yeah, Go on. No, I'll just leave it at that. I think it's good. She's, just like, she's a, a huge a true crime fan, so she was like, oh, what? Really perked up. Yeah. I, this wasn't crime. This was just a heart attack. And oh, he was like, oh. oh, that's sad. I'm sorry. No, he's a racist jerk. But whatever. Uh, well, <laughs> never mind. Well, never mind. Take that. Very cute, and his dog is fine. Oh, got the dog. Good. Dog is good. Dog will take care of. Dog got, yeah, everything's good. That's good. That's yeah. good. Well, 
But yeah, we do have to thank you for introducing us to Will because he is our best friend. Yeah, yep. there still, you go. Still best friends. Still hey. going strong. Yeah. What was Teen Wolf like compared to other shows you've worked on? Teen Wolf was the first scripted thing I had edited in TV. Um, I'd done uh, some assistant editing in some horror movies when I first moved to LA. Some fine, fine films like Mimic 2 and Children of the Corn 7. Like, don't get, yes. don't, yeah, don't get jealous. All classics. Do not get jealous. I'm all about uh, those horror sequels. <laughs> yeah, also Hellraiser 5, which was pretty good, actually, in comparison. <laughs> but anyway, so I worked in reality television before I came to Teen Wolf. So I, it was completely different for me, except, like I mentioned before, because I'd worked on making the band for so long, you did not survive on making the band until you became basically an expert music editor because it, we would we would edit things from going from like Danity Kane writing a song and like singing it to themselves or like doing a little duet or something to going them recording it to being live on stage and you had to become fluid and not only that but just whatever music we put into the episode like you just it was intimidating as f when I got there and you just like you swam or you drowned and luckily I guess I swam so when I got to Teen Wolf that skill level that like that I had cultivated on making the band for some things that were easier than reality television having a script was lovely like um I think I think reality television has more of a script nowadays but they didn't back in those days we would just watch a ton of footage and try to come up with stories that was true like on top model and even on making the band I worked on a lot of other shows too but those were the two big ones and Wipeout didn't have a lot of Last story. <laughs> Good jokes though. But uh, and Jill, it's funny when Jill, Jill came to work, came to work on Teen Wolf. You know, I had been editing her on Wipeout, which I was like, that's hilarious. So I was always a fan. So uh, yeah, it's that's you know. So the music was really the thing. And and speaking of the music of the show, so Dino and and Laura. Dino, the composer, Laura Webb, uh, the music supervisor, and and we, Dino and Laura had known each other before, but I didn't know either of them. We became very good friends because we worked as a team. And I mean, Ed as well, but I'm just talking about my experience. And I'm still very good friends with them. Dino just had their set, he had a second baby. And, you know, we, we, Laura texted me today, like we talk all the time and we're, when we can see each other, we see each other. And we became friends because that show was so in music intensive. Like if you listen to Teen Wolf, it's not a show that has a lot of silence. It has score or songs that we could do. A lot of people call songs, I have a whole manifesto, I will not go into this because nobody cares, but I'm just going to say, the old classic way to talk about music in shows was a needle drop, right? You put the record on, and I don't like to think of music that way. I like to think of songs as part of the score. They have to work in harmony to each other, along with the sound design. It all has to work in harmony together or it doesn't work at all. And so Laura, Dino, and I worked as a team. You know, I would, you, you get your episode, you cut your episode, the, the thing, you know, the picture editing would takes while, but it doesn't take nearly as long as the sound design and, and score, particularly on that show. And Jeff was so particular, which is great because that's why we got such a good thing is because Jeff had ideas and he wanted, you know, he, a lot of creative freedom, but then he, it had to be good. It couldn't, it couldn't be as rough. Some TV editors have like three days to finish all their, you, you can't do what we did on Teen Wolf. We had more time because of that. And um, so just working with Laura and finding the perfect songs and she's the best in town. Like she's the best music supervisor there is. I don't want to hear anything else about it. I've seen others. Laura's the best. She would find such awesome stuff. And she'd always like find a variety and then we'd like sit together and talk about them. And, and then Dino would come in and there are times in the episode where I could tell you where the song, 
blends perfectly into the score afterwards. Like Dino would, you know, he would, we'd say like, we'd even sometimes we'd send him the end of a song. We're like, can you match this and go into the score? Like in um, Hotel California, Motel California, there's a, the daughter song, song by the singer daughter, or the band daughter. When Derek and Jennifer are having that talk and then they have, they have the sex and then it fades out a daughter, it goes perfectly into the score. Like that was, you know, a moment. So, you know, that took a ton of time by the way, because even if I was using temp score, just trying to make it work, because you lay in temp score. And the first season, we didn't have a lot of Dino temp score because he hadn't created, like later in seasons, we'd have a bunch of Dino stuff already. So we could just put it in and sometimes it would stay because Dino had about 40 minutes, you know, 35, depending on how many songs were in the episode of, of, of original music to compose every for every week, which is insane amount of music. It's insane. And so we, you know, we put the temp score in and then, Dino would, uh, you know, he, he would work with it afterwards, but trying to make that all work. And the bummer of, of season one, and especially I just noticed rewatching Heart Monitor, is that because of our shitty budget and ironically working on MTV, their, our music budget was crappy, is that Laura did such a good job of finding music, even some bands that were just on the brink of being discovered. And then because we could only get, we couldn't get them though for all the rights. So if you watch Heart Monitor now on Amazon, it's, there's like five or six replacement songs. And they're still good. I mean, God, as I said, Laura would then have to find yet more songs that would, and they would never be as good, but they still are good, right? And she did a great job. So I think most people were like, no, the music's still good, but, but, like, you know, when uh, the opening, when Scott is in the parking garage, right? He's walking mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and Derek, that is Oland um, was originally. Now I don't know what, I can't remember what it is. It's Son of a Gun. So the song is Son of a Gun. It has like 10 million plays on Spotify. It's a huge song. And that was like a new song. And we had it in there. And there's a bunch of other stuff too that I noticed that is replaced. Uh, there's a Diamonds uh, a song that my friend uh, used on Chuck and Chuck aired like a week before ours was. So it looked like he used it first and I was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, we had it first. That happened to Laura a lot. Like she would find stuff, and, but because we didn't air as much, like somebody else would air it first. And we were like, no, we did it first. Like, um, like I know originally in the first episode, uh, Young the Giant was in there with my body and it's not, in there anymore because we could afford it but we stopped doing that like season three like they eventually just gave her the budget to have the original music which is good because it cut down like having to rescore music would mean i'd have to cut in or ed would have to cut in songs and i don't think people understand like that kind of thing has to go on sometimes like and that's another reason like if you watch the show originally and you like i love this oh that it feels different because music changes everything right it changes the feel of everything and um a couple other things about music in this episode in particular that scene between jackson and allison in front of the lockers which i love that scene i thought very good i thought that is when i was like colton can act the hell out of like he was already good but that He's so menacing, but at the same time, you kind of feel for him. Like, oh, I loved yeah. it. That, but I have to say that scene was really hard to edit because Allison, she kept moving. She's very good. And she gives you a lot of choices, which is great. But the, a lot of choices involved not doing the same thing with her notebook and hands. Oh. <laughs> so I remember, if you watch carefully, you'll see a lot of continuity problems because you picked the, you, you know, 
screw the continuity if you're going to pick the performance always, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll notice like her notebook is down or up or, you know, you're <laughs> like, do what you can. But yeah, so I actually originally all those piano keys, I scored that piece. Now, look, I'm not taking anything away from Dito. Dito's a master. I am just good at editing. I'm not a, I suck at playing anything. But I originally sound designed and scored that little with the and he did it later, but he did the same. He followed the same thing. We like we had this bed of sound design I found, and then each piano found a bunch of piano keys, and it's very, very simple, and it's very, very sparse. And uh, I loved that. It was a lot of fun to get to be able to do. So, so asking Will what you think is different between Teen Wolf and a lot of other shows that are on the air now, um, even though I've mostly just written instead of editing, though I have edited a few other things is that you don't get that freedom, I think, to be able to have the time to create that kind of sound design that can be part of the score or replace the score sometimes. The same thing with, um, there's a lot of fun sound design in that episode because like when he's having the memory of trying to find, you know, Allison as the anchor when he's going through the hallway, mm -hmm. like that was really incredible. That was a lot of fun to do. And then um, when uh, in the vet's office, after they knock him out and he's waking up and it's kind of that weird, you know, that was like, we, that was like a sound effect library that had some weird things that we put it all together to kind of make that. So it sort of replaced the score and then the score will come in and take that. And then of course, when we, when we finish the show, we have, you know, sound designer that comes in, but in Teen Wolf, a lot of the sound design that we did in the Bay, we kept, though we did, uh, we did have an incredible, like I'm not taking away from, like when Brian Parker came on the show, he did some incredible stuff for us. He's an incredible sound designer and um, he did some great, like, he's the guy that took like the real actors' voices and then would go find apes and lions and every not the first season we didn't have this, but after I think season three, every actor had their own roars and growls based on a different animal that he was like putting them with. It was rat. I love talking to Brian because he liked talk to he liked to talk about sound like I did. You know, he was like, we were like into it. So so I guess that would be to try to kind of answer your question with way over talking again. Um perfect. Love it. So you talked about um, Crystal Reed giving you a lot of different options for takes. How much footage did you typically have for an episode to go through? Lots more than we ever needed. Um, <laughs> yeah, like the directors always gave you a ton of stuff. And I was, I'm trying to think like we always had too many setup shots, which is because that's the beautiful, the beautiful wides, right? Particularly Russell loved the beautiful wide, but he didn't want to give you one beautiful wide. He wanted to give you like three or four beautiful wides. And you could really only use one or two, maybe one at the beginning and one at the end. And then, you know, a lot of because you want to see the emotion on people's faces. This isn't true for every show. The show I work on now has incredible wides and it's very differently. Sh it's shot much differently than most TV. But you want to move in. We want to, we're, we're young. We want to see the young, beautiful faces. We want to move in. So I always had way too much choice. But then you'd run out of time and then you'd get two people walking down the hallway because we had no time. We had no budget on the show and no time. The fact that the show looks as good as it is is a testament to all the crew members um, because this is one of the cheapest shows I've ever worked on. It's still one of the best looking shows I've ever worked on. I mean, it, it, they had no money. We had no money. So you would run out of time. And particularly if you had new directors, like Toby was a new TV director. He'd only done movies before. So he was constantly running out of time. So if you notice, there's a couple, just two shots. You shoot behind, you shoot in front, you shoot cross. That's all you got. Those are very easy to edit in a way because they, you don't, you just kind of, pick your best performance and you go with it so you know if you're trying to make your day it's easy but it a lot of times uh, 
the more you have, usually the more you can find the performances and find the best performances. And I, I would say we had a lot of young actors, you know, and, and they grew with the show. So, you know, some trickier things in the first season became a lot less trickier as the show went on because everybody got better. You know, I mean, God, these kids were like 18 or 19 years old, a couple of them, like, and they were still very good, but, you know, there's definite growth with all of them. And anytime you had an action scene or anything, you'd have huge, but yet we'd still have to go do inserts because we never could get everything. We always have <laughs> inserts. At the end. Well, that's usually kind of like towards at the end of the season when you've got like yeah. four units going all at one time, you'd have, yep. you know, Russell over here shooting, Tim over there shooting, and then you'd have Joe Janier <laughs> over here shooting, and then JD <laughs> over there getting like, we need hand shots because, you know, it's yeah. like for like a map or a phone. And it's, yeah, everybody's it's, hands is in the show. And so I know my hands are in the show pointing, <laughs> uh, like doing something. I remember uh, Allison, uh, she was in post, right? Did she work in post? Uh, Allie? Yeah, Allie, like her, mm-hmm. she hand doubles for um, Shelly Hennig in one of my episodes when she's <laughs> yeah. eating the peas, at, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so I have like pictures from behind the scenes of just filming Allie's hands and all that. And I think that was like right at the, in like the last couple of days of filming of that yeah. season, just because it's like yeah. not enough no. time. And it, the, the thing with inserts is the editor was always on scene because it's usually because they've either didn't get something right in the first place or we didn't get it, but it has to match already everything mm-hmm. you have. So you'd send them the video, but you also had to be there. Cause I mean, I remember being there a few times was we, unlike other shows, the writer wasn't on the scene, wasn't on stage. Most of the time we were in the room trying to write the show while it was being shot. Um, so it, uh, so often the editor would have to be there for the, the inserts to make sure that we were getting you know, the right angle or the right, you know, what have you. That was always fun. It's always fun to be like that hands-on as an editor. You know, writers often get to be more hands-on, but editors don't often get to. So I always like inserts. It's fun. <laughs> Fantastic. It's good. Yeah. How did you transition from editing to writing? So I always had been writing, but I had, when I moved to LA, I knew how to edit because I knew writing was tough and I, I just didn't even think I could do it. Just one of those things where you're just like, I can't do this. You know, like I came from the small redneck town. The fact that I was even in Hollywood editing was amazing, but like being a screenwriter, no way. But I still was writing. Like I was writing movies mostly though. I remember having that conversation with Jeff um, in the Atlanta hotel room. Once he finally got there, we were working together and uh, I asked him, I was just like, what, what, uh, you know, why'd you decide to transition to TV? And he was like, ah, you know, I was, I think he was fixing computers at Paramount writing screenplays and it wasn't getting him anywhere. And he just decided that like, he realized that he could write TV and he could make a little movie every week, you know? And that's kind of what Teen Wolf was. Like we tried to make a little movie every week. You hear that all the time now, but at that time, 10 years ago, I hadn't really heard it put that way before. And I was like, oh, that's a really, oh, I should, I should think about that. Cause I had been writing movies too. I hadn't been writing TV. And then because Ed and I just, basically spent so much time with Jeff because Jeff loved post (laughs) like I think he felt comfortable there I don't know he loved post and we had a great time and he would definitely leave us alone to do our stuff but he came in and liked to hang out and just we you know create cool things together so I just got to know Jeff really well and uh Jeff (laughs) at the time would fire his entire writer staff um, every season (laughs) That's just the honest truth. And so after um, season two, he fired them. 
I gave him um, a script that uh, I, me and Jessica had written and I was like, talk about another incredible, I was so nervous. I like, I, I once again, sweating bullets. The guy probably thought I had some sort of pituitary problem. I don't know. I was just like, <laughs> and, uh, and he liked the script. He's like, ah, it gets a little complicated. You know, it was a movie script, but he's like, ah, it gets a little muddled in act two, but you know, I, and it did, he wasn't wrong. It did get a little muddled in act two, but he was like, oh, do you and Jessica want to come and be on? Like, that's, it sounds easy, but it, it was like, it was developing this relationship over two seasons. And Jeff was very good at, uh, giving people opportunities like that's a that's a really that's a really nice thing like people who worked on the show went from you know got to direct and people who you know worked you know like Will started you know coming in helping and then he worked his way up into being in the writer's room like people people were rewarded for putting in the time so Jeff knew I wanted to write and he gave me that opportunity so that was that's how I did it and then you know I wrote for a couple seasons and then I went away and wrote on a different show and uh that was mostly to do with MTV than anything else just because they uh and please keep this in they basically (laughs) us on our contracts (laughs) um and they can call me and I'd love to talk to them about it I have emails to back that up Angela and I both Angela and I both got really really screwed uh when I tell other writers about (laughs) about that uh they're like what I'm like yeah anyway so I had to leave so I could actually progress in this town. But I did come back to do some editing. You know, I think I touched at least one episode of every season. I wrote and I either edited or wrote all the way through season four. And then I came back and did sometimes more than one, but at least one episode I either came and helped on editing or took over or edited fully every season, I think after that. So there's, there isn't a season I didn't do anything on, which is cool. It was fun to be there. You know, it's fun to be able to like come back and and do, and do stuff. So yeah, that was my transition. And then from there, I've been, you know, mostly I did a little editing like on a Disney show called Andy Mac, just for their, uh, just for their pilot. And then went to the exorcist. Cause that seems like a natural progression to edit yeah. on a Disney <laughs> show and then write on the exorcist. Sure. Sure. They check a lot of the same boxes. So So Disney now owns Fox, which is what The Exorcist was on. So it does all come around. It it all comes together. Disney's going to own everything. So I mean, and I think they're going to open up the Exorcist theme park part of Disneyland. You know, where you can go. I would visit the shit out of that (laughs) part of Disneyland. You go go deal with your uh, your inner your inner child demons, right? You take exactly. That's what they're going to do with um. Big Thunder Mountain is when you come down, it goes right into pea soup. And it's going to be good. As long as there's uh, an animatronic hot dad, John Cho involved in this equation, I'm, I'm totally on board. (laughs) He was a hot dad, wasn't he? He, I feel like he has repeated, you know, there's like, there's searching where he's like hot single dad, John Cho. And then there's like the exorcist, you know, where he's hot foster dad, John Cho. And then there's a uh, there was the the Grudge remake where he was what was oh hot hot soon to be dad John Cho that's what it was it all that's works. what it was yeah all good stuff just put the, hot the, the, the and John full, Cho yeah I didn't it's know like the, the full progression I I my episode of Exorcist uh, had I did the beehive or the wasp hive on his chest so I have like pictures of John Cho's nipple with the <gasps> with the beehive the wasp that crawls I'm out. Honestly, not sure which part of what you just said I'm most jealous of. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was pretty fun. That was a rad show too. Outstanding. I, I enjoy a show where I can do something where people on Twitter or Reddit are like, that is so gross. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. T-Wolf, it was the, it was the snake coming out of the eye. That was the, that was the yes. apex of gross. I mean, we did other gross things, but to me, that was the real. Yeah. And it's a like the, the way his, his eye, like, sort of like flies yeah. in one direction it's just yeah. it's just great really muse did a, such a good job on that on that muse is our a vfx company and they did such a good job on they did it a good job dope. on a lot of things but that that snake was excellent they did a yeah. fantastic job on that i will always john i will always love him for that <laughs> john, john gross is his name yeah um, he's great and he really does lean into that he loves he loves <laughs> He loves the gross. I remember time. for season five when we had uh, Pete Plotchik as uh, the guy in the tank and all that. <laughs> and uh, we were shooting him like his transformation where he's like finally yeah. out of the tank and becoming hot again. And <laughs> right. uh, and John was there. that was that wait is that hot Nazi hot Nazi and yeah, okay. uh, hot Nazi yeah. and uh, John's there with his iPad like just taking pictures as like we're filming you know like pete like because they like put him in like different layers of makeup so they would do a little bit he'd go away they take some off and all that and then john's just there like on his ipad like giggling to himself as he's like comparing <laughs> pictures side by side and he's like like because he's like figuring out how they're gonna make this transformation work and he's just like laughing to himself behind the camera and uh <laughs> it was it was great yeah yeah i mean and, and they did once again they had no budget because nobody had any budget and the stuff they did on you know Sure, there's things that I know they wish they could have done better, but and if anyone's ever giving it shit, I want to be like, well, they had five dollars to do that. So, <laughs> like, let's just everybody cut some slack because nobody was getting, nobody was making millions on this show. Yeah, we had incredible people. I mean, we have yeah. incredible crew, like for all the way from all our camera people to our stunt people. Like, you know, we had the guy who would. Did, did Spider-Man. His mm-hmm. name is, nickname is Spider. And he did a lot of our effects. And I think that poor, that's a poor mofo that had to do the loping. Um, <laughs> yeah. I remember loping, you guys? That yeah. went away. Real like, fast. <laughs> it wasn't fast enough, Will. No, it's it's there for the whole first season. Like it's, yeah. it's there, did it but. Away, did it go away season two or three? Because somewhere Russell, in season two, it finally goes Russell away. and I, I will just say, tried russell tried to keep it for a little bit he kept trying to convince me it looked okay and then i was like it doesn't and that's why <laughs> i will just say if people are like why did they lope and they don't lope anymore and we're like because it looks stupid and we got rid of it i think they, they did some nice stuff with it like whenever we go past trees it looked okay because the way russell mm-hmm. would shoot it but we're like whenever you had like a head-on shot or something and if i could show you the raw footage of that stuff <laughs> I'm sure it, it has to, I mean, that's, and that's what Russell was saying is he was like, cause he described, you know, the contraption the guy was in and he's being pulled on the cable and he's doing the thing and, and all that. But it's like, that's why you only have frames of seeing it. Cause it's yeah. like, if you were to like, no, here's the whole shot. I think everybody would just laugh and just be like, yes. are you out no. of your mind? How no, do you think this is cool? So did you guys already, did you guys already interview Russell? Yeah. yeah. We got yeah. It for the pilot. Yeah. Uh, Russell went crazy as I, like, <laughs> Russell, uh, he, yeah, he would try to defend it. And then I would like look at him and show him stuff. And then he would be like, okay, 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 okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, there's one Russell story I have to tell you that is heart monitor related. So if you watch, um, we had to reshoot. This was a reshoot. They had to go back to this because, so if you watch Scott leave Allison's bedroom and walk away in the wide shot, you're going to see a lot of mist from the smoke screen across, across the way. So it, <laughs> Russell loved his smoke machine and sometimes he loved it too much. Like it was... <laughs> But it was great. It always, I mean, I'm not like, trust me, Russell's, a, he made some of the coolest shots. Like I love Russell. He's the best and Highlander and Duran Duran on the very first music video. I mean, look, I've known Russell's career and I followed it long before I was friends with Russell and he did some cool stuff on Team Wolf, but he loved that smoke machine. And when you, when you turned around and Scott heard something and we found out it's the alpha in the bush or whatever, the first the first time there was so much smoke and you could hear Russell be like okay good smoke okay stop okay stop the smoke I can't I'm not gonna do his accent but the whole thing was just like it's like it's like Cheech and Chong back in the 70s and 80s like, can, up in smoke it was up it's like you couldn't see anything and you you have the special effects guys trying to wave it away i do think that was a complete reshoot because even when it was less a little less smoke we still could suggest like i can't see anything <laughs> anyway that's that's just i have many russell stories but that was that one cracks me up um <laughs> it was good even though oh yeah yeah, yeah that's right because i was gonna say he didn't direct this episode but he did do the reshoot so um I might have the story wrong. They might've had to reshoot that scene for other reasons, not, not because, or they didn't have a chance to get to it. That happens a lot too. And so it was actually the first time Russell did it that night. It was way too much. They had to let the smoke all dissipate and do it again. <laughs> I think that's what happened because it wasn't his episode. That's right. It wasn't his episode, but there had to be, they had to do some reshoots. The other thing that happened, they're doing the monitor. They're throwing the, the cross balls at Scott. My favorite scene in the episode. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Which are not real lacrosse balls because real lacrosse balls, by the way, are hard as hell. They're, they're like, yeah. like they're not like pool balls, but I've held one and I'm like, how they're, do you throw this and not like lose an eyeball? Your eyeball, yeah. It's they're hard, but the um, it's it, they last so much light. I mean, it was basically dark. Uh, and when there's that shot, like Scott's on the ground and all that stuff on the ground, and you look back up, like. It was basically dark. They had the bounce boards trying to get whatever light they could. But that's the incredible thing about digital is that you really can. It looks like it matches fairly. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. We had the best. We had the best colorist, Chris, our colorist. I know people like they don't. A lot of people who watch TV don't realize all the different people that work on it. But Chris is such a master. I would work with him forever. Um, he managed to make that look because I mean I swear to God it was like pitch black out there by the time. Like I'm looking at that footage. I'm like, how am I going to make this match? Like, how could I edit this together? You guys, it's a completely different day. But um, yeah, it's just what, you know, those are the things you deal with when you're editing. It's exciting. <laughs> well, it definitely feels like editing is is kind of like taking all the thing, you know, it's like, because you've got the script, then you get all the footage and you're watching your footage and you're taking all of the things you wanted to do, but didn't have time, but then turning it into the thing you didn't have time to do with all this footage that doesn't really work. But then when somebody watches it on TV, they think it's awesome because they have no idea of all the problems you went through just trying to get all these shots to work together and all these scenes that were shot on different days or different shots on different days and you know you're like biting your nails watching it hoping like everybody's gonna notice everybody's gonna know i'm a hack fraud and then everybody watches you like they're so cool you know they yeah. just have no clue oh absolutely you, you just don't know what you 
all the different things that you have to deal with until, you know, and you, editing is magic. It can be magic if you do it right. If you do it right, it should be seamless and no one should think about it, right? They shouldn't really think about the editing. And then the editors are like, oh my God, I can't believe like we, and also um, when we asked how much footage we have, I don't know if people realize like, I don't, there was only a couple times it was later seasons that we were ever under time. Most of the time we were like at least seven minutes over and I had an episode, I think 18 minutes over. That's half an Whoa. episode practically. Yeah. Another half an episode. That was Russell. Um, <laughs> I remember Jeff saying, Russell's like, no, no, you can't cut that. You can't cut that. And Jeff's like, well, then you cut something else, Russell. I mean, they were having a little, like they were, they, mom and dad were fighting behind me because Russell didn't want to let go of something. And then Jeff wanted it to go and they would have a little, it was, but we were 18 minutes over. So you, I, I think some of the DVDs have extended scenes. Like I can't remember what if what we cut. I'm sure we cut something out of Heart and Love or we cut something out of everything. But I, I wouldn't be able to tell you anymore. You know, like I don't remember. I remember what's on. I don't remember what's off anymore. <laughs> but I think some of the early DVD sets and stuff had some of our like extras and, and things. If we had whole scenes, we cut. Most of the time we just cut scenes down. But there are times you have to cut whole scenes. You want to because you don't want you don't want everything to be so choppy that you don't have any pace. Right. Yeah. You know? And when we over when you overwrite and overfilm, sometimes then in post you get choppy because you're just trying to get all the story. And sometimes it's better to just be able to let go of a piece of story, even though that kills us. But that's why edit, that's why it's important for the editor to be able to be the third storyteller because they can say like, yeah, I know you love that, but it actually don't need it to tell the story. So if we remove it, we lose four minutes. I know that seems like a lot, but we're 12 minutes over and that way we won't have to <laughs> tighten everything up, else up so much. So we were always over on the show. I do remember like, cause when we'd be in the room or something and Jeff would come in from having watched the cut and he's like, we have to lose 13 minutes. Or something, and you look at the script, and you're like, the script's 45 pages. Like, how, what, what are we? But then, of course, like you're saying, like with Russell, it's like, oh, well, this, this one little fourth of a page or eighth of a page scene, he's shot for like a whole day or something. And it's like this, it's now like this epic sequence when it's like, they're just walking around, guys. What do you, what are you doing? Why are we doing it? Or it's like this fight was supposed to last like just a, a minute, like, well, or something. And then it yeah. ends up being this whole Game of That's Thrones style with- battle. That's the thing with action. Action takes more time always than on the page. And you want it like you have such cool werewolf fight. You know, you don't want to cut it down. And like it was shot so awesome. They did such great stunts that, you know, it gets really tough. We've talked about editing for the show. We've talked about writing for the show. Unleashed was the episode that you both are credited for writing and credited for editing. So was that experience different from just writing or just editing? Yeah, don't do that. Don't ever do that. Don't ever write and edit at the same time. Like, so uh, it was really fun to be able to do, like to be able to write it. That one, that was a fun episode. We had like the, I think that's a motorcycle in the hallway and stuff. Like that was great. Uh, I realized that day I was wearing the same, I was basically dressed exactly like um, Daniel Sharman's character. (laughs) (laughs) I have a picture of me. I forgot to get it when, when Daniel was on set wearing it, but I was like wearing the same kind of striped sweater. But I have me and his uh, stand-in together. I'm like, oh, look, I dress like a teenage boy on Teen Wolf, which is true. I used to, <laughs> at the, I like to get the hoodies that the sales had and none of the actresses' clothes would fit me, except when Allison was on the show, her she had the same shoe size as I did. So I got some boots. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I always I loved her boots. 
Yeah, she had great boots. Yeah. And they, once again, they were never they were never that expensive because guess what? Costume department they 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 didn't have any they didn't have any money. Yeah. Like there was no money. <laughs> but I know I was on something completely different, unleashed. And uh, yeah, so I that season I would go into the writers' room at ten ish, whenever the writers' room would go, and I would go until about seven, and then I would go into the editing bay until about two or one um and I did that for a few months and it was probably the most I've ever worked in my life and it was like a hundred or plus hours a week and it was weekends and it was exhausting and I will never do that again I I couldn't do it now I'd die I would (laughs) die so um yes it was a fun experience to be able to to see that to be able to write it and edit it yes uh but on that time on tv time schedule it is not worth it it is not worth it so I didn't I didn't do that the next season I just wrote that was the season I did not edit until at least I didn't edit until I was done writing I think I came in after because we'd finished the season guess what we didn't have any budget so a lot of times writers would be done by about episode nine and then um we would be done and Jeff would finish up which is why Angela and I like to say like Remember that key in the wine bottle? We had nothing to do with that. We weren't around. It doesn't make any sense to us either, <laughs> Jeff. You could definitely tell like how far into the season it was by how few writers were in the room. Because by the end of it, it would just be like me and Jeff and I'm just taking notes and he's at his laptop. And it's just like, you want dinner, Jeff? Is You know, because it's just, there's nobody left. But it is, it was fun. It was just exhausting. I'm still exhausted just thinking about it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah have any abiding like favorite memories of season one just a favorite overall memory of season one after the season was over we were at like when jeff still had the apart like the condo we were at his condo for a party to screening party and um when i got to meet uh when i got to meet johnny cage (laughs) yes yeah so i it was my first time meeting lyndon and uh and I was a huge Mortal Kombat fan. Like, and I like walked up to him and I'm like, I poked him. I'm like, you were Johnny Cage. <laughs> He's like, yep, yes, I was Johnny Cage. I'm like, you were Johnny Cage. And uh, so Lyndon and Susan, actually, I, I've loved them both. They've, they've become very good friends. And um, Lyndon and I, we both did martial arts. So sometimes on set, we would be like, just f-ing around. And I remember it used to freak out Ian Bowen, like he'd be like standing near us and we'd be punching each other. And he's like, what the f- are you guys doing? No, you're going to hurt um, my V neck. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> they got lower and lower. Every, every season year. just keeps going. <laughs> I mean, you can tell from the stories that, like, I didn't know the crew um, first season, right? I mean, I got to meet people at parties and things and got to get to know the actors a little bit. But when they moved back to, LA you know season three which I know you guys are talking about season one but when we moved back and we were on stages together you know we did everything it was writing and that doesn't happen very much anymore where you do everything in one place like places you know every other show I've worked on has you know like shot in Canada and post is in LA you know and writing it so it's you get to go up to them but you just don't get that sort of sense of just being with each other you know so yeah it's, it's hard it's hard to like because season one I definitely have memories like we just had a great time in post you know I got to get know Ed and Ed and I have been friends you know and I there were some assistant editors that came in that I've been friends with um and of course I got to know Dino between season one and two 
um, Dino would come over to my house because Candace, his uh, now wife, girlfriend, she was still in South Africa. So Dino would come over. I think he was lonely. He'd come over and watch horror movies with Jessica and I, Aww. just because, like, just to like listen to the scores and just to talk about that. Because um, he wasn't as big of a horror aficionado. He's a fantastic mm-hmm. music, but you know, composer. You know, his old Michael Bublé career. Yes, I didn't know that until we spoke to him. Until I thought we, that was yeah. really cool. Yeah. Did he tell you about uh, splitting his pants on stage? He did not. No, Could he you did elaborate? Not. <laughs> yeah so he you know, they would always perform because michael Bublé is like you know he's got the ladies and so like they would perform in, he would perform they would perform in texas and dino has a um generous butt a, a muscular behind let's call it that and he was on stage and i guess he like turned me playing guitar and like just split it just split. And so he's kind of trying to keep his back. <laughs> I love that so much. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so good. Please keep that in to the podcast. Um, <laughs> Don't you worry. So, but it did cement like my friendships with Laura and Dino and stuff. So yeah. That's and fantastic. most of I had most of my memories are fighting with Russell about Eyeline. That was one. And what episode, what episode is it where Derek's up in the Hale house and Scott goes to visit him? He wants him to come down and there's like, that must be like episode three. It's or like something. three yeah. or yeah. It, Oh, that's right. Because he wants to go to the to the uh, or he wants to play in the game. Is that what it is? I think is that's that right. a, that's it's not the one. Two, it's, I think. Oh, yeah, it's sure. not the it's not the one where they're standing on the door where Scott's hair is getting bigger and bigger because it's raining. It's not that episode. <laughs> no, that's a different episode. There are multiple scenes in season one yeah, where Scott is... and Derek are facing off from the porch. Okay, and well, this one's not the porch. This is like he's looking up, looking down. The yeah. Oh, the cop oh, had just been there. With the... It's the cop. Yeah. 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 If you watch that episode, the eyelines are weird because Russell was like, nobody cares. I'm like, I care. And we were fighting <laughs> about that. By what I mean, fighting, not really fighting. I don't think. Um, I don't think we ever fought, uh, ever really fought. I love Russell. He, he was very sad. What season did we chop the guy in half hanging? Season two. That's the premiere of season two. Yeah. Omega. Uh, okay. Omega. Okay. Yeah. Can I tell you a quick story about that one, even though it's not this episode? Yes, please do. So originally it had been, I I I haven't seen the episode in a long time, but originally we, it was supposed to be a guy. He had, he transformed back into a guy and we chopped, we got, Russell shot, so we shot it. So we chopped him in half and you saw the body, you saw the top half of the body and that, and MTV was like, no, you're not chopping humans in half. Like you cannot do that. And they, Russell fought with them. And I remember sitting in the editing bay, we were trying to come up. We ended up, I think, being able to show the guts falling on the ground, which is just as gross, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I know. Oh, it's like standards. almost more gross because it's yeah, like, yeah. we can't show the body, but you can show the awful that's they, from they, the body. The inside part that's <laughs> yeah. not supposed yeah. to be outside. <laughs> yeah. So, but before we came up with that solution, Russell was like, Alyssa, Alyssa, I can't believe they're not letting us do this. I, I was in tears last night when I read this. I was in tears. And I swear to God, he was like, Oh, he was so upset that we couldn't chop this guy in half. And I was like, Russell, I love you so much. Like, I love that this is what brings you to tears is that we cannot show this person being chopped in half and see their guts hanging. That, that is, that's why you and I, you know, that's why I love Russell. What did I write in 3B? 3B was my favorite Unleashed season. Unleashed and illuminated. 
Illuminated. I mean, both of those are so good. So it's like, oh, I love oh, yeah. Illuminated. Illuminated. That was a really good one. I mean, they're both just really great episodes. I love that episode. That was a super fun episode to do. That one was great. That was a. I think that episode. I think that season's my favorite season. If I have to pick a favorite season, my, my absolute favorite season, favorite season is three B. Yeah, so that was insane too. We were all losing our minds because there was. It was basically a twenty four. It was a 24, 24 or 26. It was 24. 12, 12, 12. We did straight it wasn't, through. Yeah. It wasn't two seasons. It was one season. They just didn't want to pay us. Yeah. MTV didn't want to pay for having a new season. And we literally just worked straight through. And I think you can, I think Jeff will tell you, he was just basically completely losing his mind at that point. It was just so well, much work. I think that's fitting because I'm pretty sure that was the tagline for season three. Who's your mind? Who's your mind? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. TV, it's not really the it's not really the tagline of a show. That's what MTV is saying to Jeff. It's all worth it. I do remember because I think it was it was someone from MTV, I think, came to the writer's room to talk to Jeff. And this is back, this is when we were doing 3A. And they were like, so yeah, 3B, right? And you're like, yeah, we'll, you know, it's like, yeah, we're going to finish 3A. We will, and then we'll, you know, we'll take a couple of weeks. And then we're going to come back to like, what? What do you, what yeah, do you take a couple I remember of weeks? That. And he's like, well, we need just some time to decompress. They're like, no, it's you, you, you don't stop. Like we are, we are not yeah. stopping for anything. And it's like the crew had some time off because we couldn't, we had to stop shooting because we had to write episodes and, and all that. But then it's just like, he just kept going. Because I really wanted to edit uh, Jen Lynch's episode in 3B. Because mm. um, I had an eraserhead candle in my bay. And she said she'd get me, her dad to sign an eraserhead poster for me. <laughs> um, and then I didn't get to because Joe wouldn't let me edit anymore. Because I think actually um, Joe, you know, it's weird. Because most of the time Joe is about the money. Um, really? But I hmm. think I think, I think think he actually might thought it was worried for me a little bit. He's like, no, I don't think... <laughs> I don't, I think it's just right. I don't think you need to, you don't need to do that both those things. I'm like, okay, that's probably good. Cause I would have been, I, I would have been dead. So, so at least I was only doing one thing, but I do remember that. Will. I do remember when Jeff was like, we're going to just keep going. And we were all like, we are very tired. You look so tired. How about 12 more instantly, please? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, it's just like, it's, it gets rough. It gets rough. And then season four, you know, the, it's 12 again. Because I think Jeff was just like, we can't, sus- no, this is did. not he, sustainable. He, you can't just did. do he, this. He, he so, said to stop. But of course, MTV well. was then like, okay, well then we'll do less next time. Instead Five. of 24, we'll just 20. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. 20's good, right? That's like a vacation. Yeah. I always you know. love when I read that. They're like, yeah, it was six episodes. I'm like, it was nine f-ing episodes, seasons. It was not six seasons. It was nine seasons of Teen Wolf because yeah. those 5As and 3A and 3B, 5A, those are distinct seasons. Even if we didn't stop, they're distinct storylines and we had yeah. to re-break them all and we had to recast like all the things, new locations and everything. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, well, look, um, TV is the greatest job in movies and TV are the great you get to we get to make believe for a living which I'm never going to say is bad but yes it's not easy at the same time it is a 12 hour to 14 hour days on set it is grueling um sometimes you're in the writer's room forever and you want to go home but you have to you have to break it because like I'm on a show right now I'm so lucky to be on a show that is writing season four while we're shooting season three we are not going to shoot season four until next year like, that's insane. Teen Wolf, we were often writing the, for what was going to happen the next day. So yeah. you couldn't go home. 
uh, we were just slammed all the time. And so it was exhausting, but it was fun. I mean, yeah, it was, it was fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Like I love, I still love going to set and we always like going to set and seeing a fake rock um, or a rain season, going out there to see fake rain. I mean, actors aren't super pleased when you make them stand in rain all the time, but whatever. But it looks <laughs> so cool. It it, it does look so cool. cool. It, it's it, like going back to what we were talking about. It's like making this show, but making a show is so hard. But then we got to go watch it at Jeff's house every Monday and everyone was so excited to see it. And people, and it was great because like, you know, like like we'd be watching the episode and then someone would get thrown through a wall and everybody would start clapping because it's like that was so much fun to watch and to see yeah. and we and it's like well that took like two whole seconds of screen time of this episode but it was like that was like a week of like Gary Stearns working with people to make it work you know and stuff like that and it, it's and then or just having like Holland looking fantastic in something and it's like that's 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 Barbara and her people and all that you know it's like everybody works so hard and through all the blood sweat yeah. and tears and then you you get to just watch it and it's you're like oh that's what that's what we got to do this is the thing that you got yeah. to do you know and it's great to I feel like where you have a job where you have like not an immediate but you get to see the fruits of your labor you know that it's yeah. like we we yeah. killed ourselves for months and months and months many many 14 15 16 hour days is like and then here's the product that everyone loves you know that we're all super proud of so and that we'll still be talking about 10 years from now yes yeah, yeah it's it's a it's a show that I'm very happy to go back and rewatch. like you know I talk about it a lot too um in writer's room so they would make me shut up about it in the exorcist <laughs> um, Sean would be like, guess it was on Teen Wolf. I'm like, why don't you watch the show? Maybe you learn something, Sean. Sean's a good friend of mine. He's a show <laughs> He can he he'll never watch this because he's you know, he's dumb. Um, <laughs> but Sean's great. Uh but he was like, Yo, can we Teen Wolf? I'm like, I'm sorry that we were so rad and we did these things ahead of time. Like, cause he some like yeah, there's been a couple times where people have pitched stuff and I'm like, um, we did that on Teen Wolf. We can't do it because I just I did that exact thing. Yeah. So um try not to re try not to, you know, there are things that didn't go in Teen Wolf though that maybe you can recycle for something else. Like a lot of pitches that a lot, a lot of, of pitches. stuff that never a lot of stuff that never made it to to the screen, you know, all storylines that never happened. People I would love never... to uh I'm gonna see if I because I have I have like all the everything from the writer's room uh right. that I just took with me uh and um <laughs> so I, I've been thinking about like I should go back through all the notes because it was just giant pages documents and just to be like because I was just like I and Kyle would just be writing like just everything you said we would write down and just because you know you have to go through all those bad places okay. I don't know what's going on here and a lot of times and Jeff said this <laughs> you know like it feels like you're going in circles but it's actually, you're just getting slowly closer and closer to the dot, to the bullseye of what you need to be. And Is that where the whole spiral imagery came from? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. But it's a nice metaphor now though, Kate. I like that you pointed it out. <laughs> yeah, you should ask Jeff, like sometimes the storylines, some of the stories that didn't happen weren't because they weren't good. They just didn't happen because <laughs> we didn't have time or we chose a different storyline. Some of them were bad. Some of them were just because we chose a different storyline. But you should ask Jeff, like if you could share some of the stuff that 
didn't make it. Yeah, I will. Be yeah, so fun. I'll definitely do that. See if I can go back through and find some interesting ideas. Jeff um, always talks. He always he was always the biggest spoiler of everybody. Anyhow, like he would be like, <laughs> okay, you guys can't spoil anything, and then he'd like get talking to like an interview or something, and he would just be like, I'm really Jeff. Yes, well, that would be the thing. Is like I would be on set and I would take a picture and I'd go and be like, can I can I post this? Is that okay? He'd be like, oh, he's like. Uh, crop it a little bit take out this one little thing and then like the next day there'd be some article where he's like giving away the season and it's just like <laughs> what come on i was worried about this little picture and you're talking about like nagitsune and void over here and it's like what are you doing <laughs> why are you giving this away you know so but 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 that's the thing is like jeff loved the show so much he loved wedding yeah. people's you know appetite getting people hungry for the show and he we just drop these little hints and morsels and stuff and it's like y'all have no idea what's coming you know so yeah, yeah. super fun super good times it's it fun, to, fun, to, fun to remember it all yes yes it was we had a wonderful time chatting with Alyssa and can't wait to have her back now let's get back to heart monitor so I, to, to jump into this I'd like to talk about the scene with Peter and Derek at the catatonic folks home and (laughs) (laughs) and i I think the scene is very good i really like derek pleading with his uncle it's it's very good and it's it's just a great scene of derek is running out of options he he doesn't know what to do and he needs an ally and he wants family you know which makes complete sense and i really like when he's begging essentially peter to give him a sign Give him, you know, give me a sign that you hear me, that you understand, and you don't get anything. And that's when the nurse shows up, who has a severe attitude, and <laughs> kicks Derek out of out of the hospital home thing. And then right as that's happening, we see Peter's finger start to move just a little bit. And I really don't like that at all. <laughs> Because his sign was uh, going to be to flip uh, Derek off as he left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't like it because Peter is in full control of his faculties. Like we know this in just a couple of episodes, and three episodes from now, the reveal comes that it's Peter who's actually the alpha, and he self heals super fast. Um, just because kind of- he he actually says for dramatic flair. He does say yes. that. He said that. He says that in those words, which is he fantastic. Does. Yeah. And so it's like, he's in complete control. So the thing with the finger bothers me because that's not for Derek, it's for the audience. It's, a, <laughs> it's so the audience is like, no, no, Derek, turn around, turn around, you're, you're missing the sign that, you're, that you were just pleading to get. And it's, it's just a, a cheat, it's a cheat. You know, it's just it something for the audience to see to be mysterious and fun, but it, doesn't really mean anything because in the world of the show, Derek or uh, Peter has no reason to do that because he is 100% in control of his faculties. And the nurse is in on it. Like there's no one to benefit from it. Yes, exactly. Like, like there's no one to benefit, but the audience who in the world of the show doesn't exist, you know? So it's, it's this, this is very similar to. I would really like to have Andrew Scott pop up and be like who are you doing that for like in, <laughs> like in Fleabag you know what oh, I yeah, mean we, like, like, where? Like, it, 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 it is a great scene but before that I really like the idea that part of Derek knew that he was the alpha or suspected mm-hmm. that Peter was the alpha and that's why he goes there and asks him 
to give him a sign that there's maybe just some very small subconscious part of him yeah. that senses that that the the alpha spark is still in the family yeah that would be cool like i i think that could have been like a fun like scene just just one scene where he is at you know basically like this scene like it could have been i guess incorporated into the scene where derek is just out of options he feels like he's out of time and he is like i think it's you you know he's like like i don't get the scent of another werewolf like i don't smell the alpha on you but whatever you know and he's like i don't think there's anyone else here i think it's the three of us like we're it and it's not scott because he's an idiot and <laughs> it's not me because i don't I, if it was me i wouldn't be having this conversation this wouldn't be happening and so you're it you know and that would that would have been fun if if derek had been leaning in that direction a little bit i think that could have been an interesting part of that scene um just because there really aren't a lot of suspects, you know, um, as far as we can tell. I mean, yeah, Deaton is super shady in this episode and for no reason. Since <laughs> red spoilers, I mean, it's for literally no yeah. reason. I, I was gonna say, you know what else is for no one but the audience? Deaton's entire storyline for season one. Yeah. Not, I mean, excluding the reveal that he knows about werewolves like I don't have a problem with that whatsoever that's a that's great, great reveal I that's love great. that but the like lying to Derek again not excusing Derek's choices <laughs> in that situation they're bad choices they're wrong I just also in addition don't understand what Deaton's motivation is there yeah like with Derek I understand why he's doing what he's doing I think that it's a stupid ass thing to be doing but I understand why he doesn't think it's a stupid ass thing to yeah. be doing I don't absolutely get why Deaton's like I'm not going to tell him this and that's before we even get into the whole emissary thing which was just not it didn't work for me it doesn't make sense I Really I really like the concept I, I, of an emissary. Very oh, yeah. cool concept. Very cool. I feel like he just should have been the emissary for a different pack. Like that was just such yeah. an, for me, it seems like that would have been such an easy way to do it. And, you know, you could still have, you could still have Deaton going to Derek and saying like, I met your mother yeah. because. How I met your mother. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like I think that would have been really interesting because Derek doesn't trust him but also I think he would be he would want to hear what he has to say because it's not like there's anyone else alive that he could talk to who yeah. would have known her or yeah. really anyone in his family uh, much at all um, but him actually being there at Emissary and like Talia having promised Talia that he would take care of Derek none of that made any sense to me whatsoever and it was just like especially going back for the rewatch I was just like I don't understand what we're doing here yeah. his fingers were crossed behind his back <laughs> it's just a retcon that doesn't work very well just because so much has already been established Hale family wise or not even Hale family wise but it's just thinking you know, it's like the incident happened six years ago. Dean was incident. The, it's one way to put the it. The fire. The fire happened six years ago. Dean was emissary at that time. Derek would know him. 
mean, it, it, you know, because it's never, it's never really played like the emissary is not known to the pack or the emissary only speaks with the alpha mm-hmm. type thing. It's just like, nope, this is the pack's emissary. Right. Like and especially <laughs> even, even more so for him to say that he promised Talia that he would look out for Derek. I was like, well, then what have you been doing for the last seven years? Well, he, well, he, he lost track of him, so he decided just to pursue his passion for taking care of animals. Okay, he and then he was alive too. And then there he came, is. Derek came back and he was like, Oh, nah. that's right. I made a point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah, nah. Yeah. Well, he didn't, when he made that promise, he didn't know Derek was going to leave Beacon Hills. He thought he was just going to stay around. He's like, I, I just bought a house here. I can't just. Sure. Leave. I just got out of vet school. We don't even really know. What is he even holding back from Derek and why in that scene? I don't know. I don't know. I, and I like, I do like... think he is. I don't think Derek is mistaken because first of all, it has to be a really clear lie for Derek to catch it. And second of all, like he's being suspicious as f- I don't even need to be a werewolf to be like, well, that f- is lying. Yeah. I think. I think it's a couple of things like what I'm going to talk about is like two things here, but like the first being like maybe in Deaton's first suspicious scenes, they didn't know who the alpha was going to be. So it was kind of like, this could be a fun red herring. And then it was decided, you know, cause then we meet Peter like two episodes later. And so it's like, okay, well they, they made a decision. That's fine. But then I feel like maybe they just kept it going. It's like, well, we can't just have a red herring and then just not play it anymore and I feel like that might be what this was that it's like okay we know it's not him but we kind of keep we need to keep that trajectory for the time being mm-hmm. maybe I'm not sure I wasn't there unfortunately but then also I feel like I mean Seth's just awesome Seth Gilliam's just a really cool person and he's a great actor and I feel like it was just like we've got Seth Gilliam we need to do more <laughs> with him because he's a good actor and then I believe the emissary came from that as as part of it and then I think it was just kind of a retcon that was like we're just gonna roll with it unfortunately because it's like we like this actor we want to keep using him because again he's very strong and he brings something to the show and we want to have him be this part without having to bring in a whole new character and then it's like well really track with what we're going to learn later and I think it, it was just like we're just gonna go with it and just see what happens. I, I believe that's probably what it was. And um, and I get it. I get it. It's it's it can be difficult when you have an actor you you really like and you want to keep them on. And, and I mean, I definitely think they should have kept Deaton around because he's interesting. But I I, I guess okay. I didn't understand why why does everything have to relate back to. Like, why, why does it have to be something that has already been, like, ruled out? Why couldn't it just be his own story? Yeah. Why does it have to be about the Hales? Yeah, like Kate said, I think it would have just been a really easy fix to be like, oh, yeah, he was the emissary to a neighboring pack. Yeah. A couple yeah. states over or whatever. And then maybe, like, what, you know, that he had talked to Talia, and then when the fire happened, he was like, well, things are going to deteriorate rapidly there. Like maybe yeah. he he has some, you know, intuition that creating that kind of power vacuum 
could be a problem, which is ultimately what happens. And so he goes there just to sort of be like Giles on the Hellmouth and, you know, (laughs) just like watch it and, and try to maybe do subtle things to keep it from the brink of disaster. Yeah. That that's you know. cool. That's that's a fun idea that maybe Deaton's reveal of being in on it because we get that this season, you yeah. know. Um, maybe if that had been had lasted up until like the Duroc in three A, because that's when we introduce all the emissary stuff. Where mm-hmm. you so you just have this character, and then you can hopefully if you've played it outright and played it correctly, that you can then look back on it and be like, oh, it, it was Deaton kind of steering the ship away from all of these shoals and stuff as best he could from the background because i do like that idea that he's like this horrible thing has happened there's a very important and influential pack the pack's gone and only kids remain and something bad is that type of vacuum attracts people and not the best kinds of people so he's there to kind of mitigate as much bad as he can and then that gets revealed later but you know maybe uh talia always knew that peter was going to be trouble with her gone so deaton stayed behind to watch him to see if he ever did heal but then did a terrible job of it but then did but then exactly nothing to help I guess, well, maybe he just I mean, thought that maybe he didn't realize that peter was healing until it was too late but I, he still I, should have told derek I, yes I feel like that is probably the most generous reading where Peter did such a good job of, of hiding all the healing and being able to heal himself and then re-injure himself, which is really, that's a cool idea, um, mm-hmm. that Dean was fooled, that he believed another alpha showed up and killed Laura Hale because he, you know, he knew she had come back. And he thought maybe as part of this power vacuum that this other alpha had shown up, killed Laura Hale and now was out there kind of stalking around and he wasn't even looking at Peter, you know, and it's kind of the thing where he, you know, Peter hadn't moved or spoken or blinked or anything in six years. And he's mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think anything's happening. And then he believes a whole other creature has shown up and that just takes his focus even further away from Peter. I, th- I think that's a generous reading. I like that. Calista. I think that's, he still, he still should have uh, maybe mentioned something. Yeah. some people named Derek Hale, but uh <laughs> Everyone should take some communication classes in yes. Hills. Yes. Yes. Talk about their feelings. They are so bad at talking about most things, but especially feelings. They all need to go to therapy. They need yeah. to go to individual therapy and group therapy. I would just like to say that I feel like if they had involved Styles more, he would have figured out way before then that Peter was the alpha. Yeah. That, that would have been a fun investigation because, you know, from the previous episode where it ends with styles like with the hail fire files and all that it it, it does feel like this is the beginning of an investigation it it doesn't really play out and that would have been fun if he had been putting all these disparate pieces together and then discover that he's like there is no one else like there's only one person around and he's been in a waking coma for six years and then it's like but is he and then you just hear like a slow clap and you turn <laughs> around and it's peter hale you know so that would have been fun i, I agree if, if if styles had a little bit more to do that could have just jump started right off of that that scene where he's got all the hailfire stuff you know so 
I feel like they go out their way to exclude styles. And I don't know if it's just because of Derek's trauma with humans or if it's just for writing reasons, but because Scott and Styles had been together whenever Derek's like, let me show you something. And then it's only Scott that he takes with him. Yeah. I, I do actually think that that is the reason. I think it's harder for Derek to say things in front of humans. And then I can see that. I noticed that whenever I was watching Wolfsbane, yeah, Wolfsbane, whenever there's the beginning teaser, which I totally forgot about and really loved. Oh, God. Um, love that teaser. And they pick Derek up mm-hmm. and Scott uh, Styles is trying to ask him questions and he keeps just like trying to get him back in the back seat. And they're the right just, questions, yes. by the way. They are the right questions to be asking because that, and that's something that kind of occurred to me is that Scott doesn't ask the right questions. And sometimes he doesn't even ask the questions at all. I feel like my first question would be, why did you bite me? And then he would be like, wait, I didn't bite you. Right. So like, I mean, I understand he just like, his default is this is the only werewolf. He must have been the one that bit me. But I'd still be like, why did you bite me? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Instead, what he says is he's like, my life is ruined. Being a werewolf is the worst. And then Derek gets so offended that the conversation just stops. Yeah. He's like, how dare you? Being a wolf is the best. And then they get shot with arrows. And that's like, as far as that conversation goes. Yeah. And Styles is all about questions. So you know he would have been asking so many questions. It probably would have overloaded Derek. Yes. But he definitely would have been asking the right questions right off. Yeah. Now. Probably some others, not as right ones, maybe about like, uh, girl cocks and stuff. But probably. I like, like the so idea. you can't circumcise because of the healing process, right? Yeah. I have this idea that in the scene where Scott is introduced to Peter for the first time, Styles is there. He's just in the car. And Scott has his phone on silent and he's just feeling the buzzing on it because Styles is constantly like texting him questions. You know, he's like, ask about the dicks. Unless Derek like tied him up in the car or something. I feel like, okay, here's what I actually think. I feel like Styles would just roll up to Deaton one day and be like, is there a kind of wolfsbane that can basically just get werewolves drunk? Because I did this on my dad one time and I felt really bad, but I would not feel bad doing it on... Derek and Peter (laughs) and just having them and just like getting them to talk about all the things that I want to know about. (laughs) Oh, I bet there's like Wolfsbane wine and stuff like that. There has to be. Right. Yeah. There has to be something because. There you could do a fake advertisement for that. Will Wolfsbane wine. Get crunk. (laughs) (laughs) Get howled tonight. After that scene, we have, (laughs) when Derek goes out to his car, after that scene, he finds a flyer on his windshield on the windshield of his car uh, as it's starting to snow in that scene if you pay attention you can see some snow flurries coming down on the printout is a picture of a deer a dead deer with a spiral i guess carved into it and it's very interesting but at no point ever on the show do we actually learn who put it there it had to be the nurse i feel like has to be it has to be because it couldn't be peter because he he's playing a part in that moment and there's no way he could get around Derek so it had to be the nurse doing it right before she came in to pull Derek out of the room but why why do they want him to have that I do not know the answer to that question honestly I mean it leads into Dean right 
It does lead him. Yeah, to but why do does it? Besides that, he's the only person whose job title involves animals. But how, but Deep knows about because Laura came and asked about that exact thing. But how does right. Derek know that? Because he everyone goes to Deaton to ask about animal things. Does Deaton tell him that Laura came? He and does, asked him? No, but oh. he's already questioning him at that point. No, what? I, I thought he just said I was asked. I didn't think he. Oh, it's Harris who I think says Laura. Ha- Harris asked. says Laura. Yeah. Ha- yeah. Harris does and Derek Derek actually tells Scott like Laura found this guy's name and she went to talk to him so I went to talk to him too he doesn't say anything like that about we don't know how much Derek knows about Laura's investigation maybe he has like an idea that she talked to Deaton or for some reason but then he didn't know like what the line of questioning was about but then that Mm -hmm gives him an idea on the back it just said talk to Deaton and we didn't see that part <laughs> <laughs> wait why did Laura Hale come back to Beacon Hills and so that's another thing so there's no way it's that messy Peter because Peter lures her there yeah I but like. with did he lure her there with the spiral on a deer? Yes. I I think he did I think yeah. he started carving the spirals and leaving the spirals knowing that Laura probably kept tabs on what was going on in Beacon Hills and that she would recognize it for what it was and that she would wonder, you know, did someone survive or, or is it another werewolf or group of werewolves who were familiar with the Hale Pack doing this? Regardless, I think she would want to go back and try to figure out what's going on because she is sort of the rightful heir, so to speak. Yeah. You know, she, she would have inherited that territory if they hadn't left. Here's my question. Why didn't Derek go with her, though? Their pack consists of just two. the two of them. <laughs> yeah. So why wouldn't he go with her? I've actually spent a lot of time cultivating this headcanon. And I think, so my theory is that she left without telling him because she didn't want him to come with her. Mm-hmm. And she like thought that. it was something that she could check up on and then come back fairly quickly. Yeah. So my my theory is that she got a plane ticket and <clears throat> flew back to Beacon Hills. And when she when he didn't hear from her, he took her car, which is the Camaro. But nice. I, I feel like there's a line though that makes it sound like he did communicate with her while she was there. What line is it? I'm trying to remember. I feel like it was when he was talking to Peter. I'll have to go through because you know we've been oh. watching so many episodes like back to back and like yeah. going through and re-looking. Yeah. I feel like he said something about like Lauren told me. That sounds like that. familiar. I mean, I remember I him saying things though. about her investigation, but I didn't think he ever outright said she told me. I thought it was all stuff like she found this, she found that, she thought she was close to figuring something out. But I thought that, again, I, my theory was, what if the Camaro was Laura's car, Mm -hmm. and that she had left some of her notes from when she was, like, researching from New York before she decided, I need to be there in person to figure this out. And so when he takes the car to join her, he finds her notes. That that. was my headcanon. Because I was trying to figure out how can I make this make sense? 
if if Lara was not keeping tabs on Beacon Hills, I do think that the Peter or the nurse could have like sent that picture, like as just like a like an email from a Proton account or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was just like something's happening in Beacon Hills, and that I, because that would I think be more than enough to get her be like what right and come and I think she would feel a sense of obligation and I do kind of like the idea of like we we see a couple different instances of Derek saying that's that he keeps some things from other people including Scott to protect them yeah you know like when Scott first asks about the spiral he says you don't want to know and I kind of like the idea that he got that from somewhere and that Laura's philosophy was like this is my problem to solve and you're my beta and you you know yeah. I'll figure it out and then I'll come back and tell you what happened I but it's not you know I'm not I'm not telling you about something you don't need to know about yeah I can see that and maybe their mother was like that too you know maybe she was like the emissary talks to me they don't talk to anybody else I don't you guys don't need to be worried about how our relations are going with other packs, or whether we're worried about there being hunters in the federal government. That's not that's not something you guys need to worry about. Yeah. That's yeah. grown-up talk. It is grown-up talk. That Deaton is just R2D2 his way uh <laughs> through this and he has all the information. He has lots of answers, but instead of telling people he's just beep booping his way through this story. This is kind of jumping ahead till next week when when Jackson <laughs> is it sees the alpha in the hallway and and the alpha just kind of lopes off. You know, it's like Peter's making atmosphere. We've mentioned this before. Like he's going out of his way to create atmosphere and tension in his own little movie that he's starring in. And I do feel like Derek was doing the same thing here. He's like, this is going creepy. Derek was just doing a spot-on impersonation of the Alpha. That's accurate. I like to imagine, you know, back in the day, Talia was, like, teaching her pack, right? And she's like, now, we may do things as wolves, we may do things as humans, but no matter what, we do it, and they all say, with style! (laughs) Nice. Styles. The style. <laughs> That's why Derek doesn't actually know anything about werewolves is because his family is too busy, like working on the dramatic flair to learn about important things like emissaries and abominations and stuff. Kind of true. Talia was a little busy teaching them backflips. It's like, this is how you enter a scene, kids. That's Back correct. Into yes. It. <laughs> sure but you I, are shopping. <laughs> but I also feel like, you know, because... We repeatedly hear from Derek, like, I've heard about it, but I don't know if it's true, or I didn't think it was real. Like, that was mm-hmm. the case with the abomination thing. It's the case with with the rumor that killing the alpha who turned you can, quote unquote, cure you mm-hmm. of lycanthropy. So now I just imagine, like, Nana Hale rolling over in her grave and being like, I tried to tell you. You all said, <laughs> it, you all said that I brought all these, you know, weird beliefs from the old country and you didn't listen. <laughs> Yeah, you know, because he he talks about it like like it's like bedtime stories almost. You right. Know? Like it's yeah. Like these folk tales that they heard, but he had no idea if they were accurate because things things were chill when the Hale Pack occupied Beacon Hills. Right. Mm. Is the impression that I get is that things have gotten weird since they've been gone. I do like what you just said, where it feels like bedtime stories. And I feel like that would make a lot of sense if the world of Teen Wolf wasn't as populated with 
weird and supers and all that because it, I like that idea that it's like maybe if at this point in time werewolves were a little bit rarer than we you know come to find out so it, it was a story where it's like well this doesn't happen often people don't get turned you know it's not like in the movies but that's always happening or so it's like this is kind of rare so it's like it is a bedtime story of well how do you is there a way to turn it back because if you're born you're born but if like mm-hmm. you're bitten is there a way to reverse it like well like a 400 years ago someone was like well if you kill the alpha that bit you then yeah and it just kind of turned into like a little legend as maybe the werewolf population dwindled down we come to find out that the werewolf and superpopulation is pretty robust but was it previously because i feel like most of what happens happens because of things that would not have happened when the hail pack occupied like think about the alpha pack right yeah mm-hmm. we definitely get the impression that while derek has heard of them he's he's never met them they've never been anywhere near hail territory yeah right right and don't don't they they activate the nematon i was about to say like the right. nematon and that is becomes- activated so Right. And then things with like the chimeras where you're getting where all sorts of things that's that's outside intervention. And I just get the impression that those aren't the kinds of things that happened, that, that there was a kind of stasis when the hail pack occupied the territory and that they had done so for some time. Mm-hmm. But when they were all massacred, it created a power vacuum and Beacon Hills hasn't really recovered since. Right. That's kind of how I think of it. And we don't get a lot of information about what it used to be like, but there's nothing in Teen Wolf that contradicts that. Yeah, that's a good point. There are lots of deaths <laughs> happening now and everything, but it's nobody's ever like, ah, oh, Beacon Hills, you know, the unusual murder rate here or anything <laughs> until the the start of this the sequence of events that comprised the show. So yeah, I, I, I got the impression that there was there was a balance when a powerful and experienced alpha being Talia Hale occupied that territory and had it under her protection that the alpha pack wasn't going to show up. You didn't have renegade druids and shit, you know, (laughs) you just had like normal stuff, like the occasional emissary from another pack. Mm -hmm. And when the kids worried about that stuff, she was like, shush, don't worry your pretty little head about it. We've been here for ages. We're fine. Yeah. And there was just an X factor that they did not anticipate. And that was Kate Argent, the Joker of Beacon Hills. And then Peter. And then Peter. (laughs) So I feel like even if Kate hadn't come around, Peter would have done some shit eventually. Uh, Yeah, I I think so. But I also think she probably, like, because he didn't do anything crazy town prior to the fire that we know of. So I feel like Talia kept him in check. Like she was actually his alpha. I always wanted it to be revealed that Peter was actually in on it with Kate, but she betrayed him at the last second and he wasn't meant to be in the house because they'd worked out this deal. But then she was like, you, I work alone and decided to like burn down the house. And that would just show that she didn't actually need Derek anyway. She just did it because she was such a monster. Yeah. I would be down with that. She's just team chaos. She's team chaos. I would definitely be down with that because I mean, Peter is conniving you know he's like you open up the dictionary it's just a picture of peter next to the word conniving and so i mean that makes complete sense that if if uh talia was keeping him in check and then he was like i don't want this anymore and then he might have even thought like you know because we had the discussion about how the alpha this transfers whenever someone doesn't physically take their life he might have thought he was next in line to get it that would go to him if she died in a fire that's true but then it goes to laura 
which yeah. just pisses him off all the more. Yeah, that would have been really interesting. Yeah. Especially if, if there had been um, collusion between Kate and Peter, where it was, so it's like a double, a double right. thing where it's like, oh God, I've been, the, you know, been burnt up real bad, but then also somewhere in the back of his mind as he's in the hospital or whatever, he's realizing that it didn't transfer. I should be healed. Mm-hmm. Like I should yeah. be an alpha and I'm not. And it went to Laura and Hale and then he started planning. Burnt twice. Oh, double burn. Yep. Even worse. And it's great that the Beast of Jevedon makes an appearance in season five. It's so much fun that we get to see the story of the Maid of Jevedon and we get to see this guy get bitten in the Americas during the French and Indian War. And he comes home and he's this monster and he just starts killing everyone. I think it's interesting as we get to the end of the season and Allison is the one saying that following night school, she felt weak and powerless and never wanted to feel that again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, poor Lydia is the one who has to suffer through feeling powerless for a whole nother season while everyone around her just has more knowledge and ability to understand what's going on around them and protect themselves to a better degree than she can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be fun. I can't wait to get to it. It's it's good stuff. I'd forgotten about Peter's um, failsafe. That's all Peter also just right being now. a dramatic bitch. So dramatic. So dramatic. But who are you performing for, Peter? Himself. Google Maps is always watching. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Is this the first time we see the nurse or did we meet her in the this original This is the first scene? time. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I was just curious. I couldn't remember, so... It's also when we learn he has a thing for redheads. Oh, that's accurate. Okay. I never put that together. Just saying. <laughs> oh, Out the ashes I rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. Good one. What's that? It's from Sylvia Plath. Oh, nice. Very nice. Lazarus. Anyway. Yeah, I was trying to remember the title. I'm an yeah. English lit nerd. And I forgot that Styles was the one who established the whole anchor thing, which became such an important part of the show. It yeah, did. There's an a. episode called Anchors. Um, but but Derek does end up using that term too, which I find interesting because I feel like it has to be one of those conversations that takes place off screen. Mm-hmm. Where, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Where like yeah. Styles puts forth this concept of having an anchor and, and that's what we're going to use to refer to the thing that helps you stay in control, whether that's a person or an emotion or a memory or, or whatever, because Derek uses that concept and that word to try to teach his betas in season two. Yeah. Beyond Anchor became such an important phrase for fans. I remember seeing like a lot of people that had that tattooed on them. Yeah. yeah. It's, I, I think it, uh, it resonates really well if you're someone who's ever struggled with mental illness and trying to feel like you're in control of your own emotions and your own emotional state. On a lighter note, what did you guys think about Derek getting fisted? I really had to stop myself from making a comment. Me there. too. Just Me too. Make all the fisting jokes. I mean, <laughs> hey, we're going to save like, all of those be... jokes for 3A. Yeah. I was going to so... say, there's like a couple like... <laughs> Like 3A, there's several like fisting joke moments. And they are all between Derek and Styles. Yeah, who else would they be between? Uh, yeah. The two brothers who merged by literally fisting each other. <laughs> That's what I was talking about. I, I 
permanently blocked that from my head. How could you block that silhouette of just <laughs> and then they merge together? I just I how, somehow that is it. seared it was, into my brain. No, I was the same. I was the same as Calissa. I was thinking about two moments between Derek and Styles. One where yeah, the glove, and then the other one where Derek that wonderful little bit where he's like. Let me see your fist and grabs it. He's like, oh yeah, look at his fist. He thinks he could get it through a wall. Yes, Kate and I love Teen Wolf, obsessed with Teen Wolf, but the parts mm-hmm. we remember most are the parts that Tumblr was obsessed with. Right. Because right. we were and heavy on specifically, Tumblr at the time. Right, specifically the areas of Tumblr that we frequented, which of course were in turn very heavy with the steric because that's our OTP. Yeah. We will go down with that ship like that does it that's right with a little thumbs up like terminator 2 just like uh, worth it I'm gonna bring tears to my eyes kate tears nice. to my eyes i didn't know you were still capable of that yeah. well up doesn't make me cry but seeing old arnold schwarzenegger get melted down <laughs> makes me cry <laughs> he was like a father figure to him <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes this week's episode of return to beacon hills We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. And don't forget to find us at patreon.com forward slash RTBH Podcast for more awesome exclusives. Join us here next week for our look at Season 1, Episode 7, Night School, and talk with the director of the episode, Tim Andrew. Rate and review us on iTunes. Five-star reviews, get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.